the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast podcast. It's Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022, and this is the People's Podcast. This is Steak for Breakfast. Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blowtorches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear. Free to make barbecue great again. Mm. Use the code STEAK15 at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs, for 15% off your order. Also brought to you by Stay Ready Gear. They're at stayreadygear.com and Instagram, stayreadygearusa. Holsters, custom Kydex, mag carriers, tourniquet carriers, on and off-duty gear. Hot-melted Kydex made just for you. Use the code STEAK for 5% off. Don't get ready. Stay ready. My slippers, now 50% off, in addition to OG My Pillows, lowest prices ever, and Giza Dream Everythings. When you enter promo code to take a checkout, big, big savings, hit them up on the website, mypillow.com forward slash steak, or talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear, the world's most technologically advanced in-studio recording equipment can be found at Odyssey. Whether you're gaming, potting, born and raised in the county of Dade, oh, those years will be taken care of. You won't need any Haitians to be giving you any boat rides when you're wearing Odyssey in the studio. Find them on Facebook and Instagram. Motorboats? There you go. Mike down at West Coast Survival Arms has been servicing Southern California for over a decade. He's got a five-star rating. He's licensed FFL if you're in the tradesies. Most importantly, he's got ammo. Newly redesigned, easy-to-use website, westcoastsurvivalarms.com. Hit him up on Facebook Messenger or via the telephone, 619-870-6992. Steak for breakfast, packs the blue. We love our first responders. They're always working hard. And uh, when they're off-duty, they're usually wearing gear and apparel from Mediocre Medic. T-shirts, sweatshirts, flip-flops, fanny packs, and more. Stickers and patches for while they're on-duty. Got a pretty fire IG, if I do say so myself. MediocreMedic.com is the website. And last but certainly not least, the gold standard of tactical flair, home of the Zero Fucks Duck, Dump Box. Don't know? Go ask Mark Joe Friday. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram and the websites dumpbox.us. Friends, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Stake for Podcast Breakfast. There you'll find a link tree that'll take you to all our social medias, the website, our Substack, Telegram, and more. On that note, to all our friends joining us on the Patriot Podcast Network via the Roku app, from the Twitterverse, Instagram, Discord, and now, True Social. Welcome, Tuesday edition, Steak for Breakfast Podcast, episode 118. I'm Roan. Noah's here. Yo. Antoinette's joined us. Hey, guys. We've got a pretty packed show today. We're going to be sitting down with former ambassador, Carla Sands, CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network, Alan Jacoby. 
host of the John Backman Show, John Backman's going to be here, and we're going to be having a conversation all about China. China. With the co-founder of the Tea Party, Mr. Michael Johns. Before we get into any of that, let's jump into the news. All right, how are you doing today after that? I'm good, good. How are you? Good. We got a busy show lined up. Unfortunately, we're going to be without Noah. He's uh, working, and... uh, we all know I'm at high anxiety levels when I have to control everything on this end, but hopefully I just didn't erase everything. I don't think there's a delete button, so I think we're good. I think you're good. Don't worry. Yeah. You know what we're not good about is, you know, we started talking about it on Friday's show, and it seems to uh, be resonating a little bit in the media after the uh, Sunday talk shows was the legitimacy of the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm-hmm. Well, we saw one of the oldest standing American news agencies canceled for over three weeks during the uh, height of the presidential election cycle canceled over it. Yep. Pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, what can we say? I mean, I could see maybe the other side of the coin being that the government didn't want to have to deal with uh, Hillary Clinton email things like they did right at the height of the 2016 presidential elections, but there's no excuse for no, what has happened? Yeah, this is this has turned into yet another enormous scandal surrounding Joe Biden and his family and, and the current administration, and uh, definitely puts the spotlight back on the DOJ and our uh, federal law enforcement agencies who uh, collaborated in covering this up and helping repress it with their partnership with big tech. Yep, it's. I mean, it's the same thing with like you know what they did with Hillary and whatnot. I think that you know a lot of people that were on the fence that didn't like Trump, if they. If it wasn't censored like they did, you know, the laptop, like, for example, I think a lot of people that were on the fence when it came to voting wouldn't have voted for Biden. Right. A lot of people that, like, uh, voted for Biden just because they, they didn't like Trump sort of situation. Yeah. And then, you know, I think that if a lot of people knew the truth and that the va- laptop was valid, they would have thought twice when they when they went to vote. That's one thing. But sure. If, no, know, def- general, it just shows how corrupt our... Our intelligence agencies are. Our current system definitely needs a cleansing, and yep. uh, a lot of new employees in there. But I don't, I don't anticipate us getting either one of those anytime soon. Yeah, I don't see that happening. Well, let's jump in the wayback machine. We have uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail back in in 2019, being, um, I guess, some would say, accosted by a concerned citizen at a campaign event, town hall format. Let's hear him. Uh, well. Joe Biden himself. Has been messing around in the Ukraine over there. But you, on the other hand, sent your son over there. You're, you're selling access to the president just like he was. So you you're got a damn money. liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that? No one the has proved that? No. You said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? Get your word straight, Jack. Mm, turns out that that happened to... Uh, uh, you're on video, buddy. <laughs> actually occur. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting to see how some of this stuff is, has come back around. And, uh, you know, whether or not we're ever going to be able to see the actual contents of that laptop, we all know there's pictures that have leaked online. Like, you know, and, and they're, they're everything from 
email, setting up meetings with people in, in foreign governments, the Ukraine and China and things like that. The whole narrative of the 10% of the big guy all the way down to a lot of the pornographic material that's been out there. Like, you know, is that really Barack Obama's daughter? Is he really getting foot jobs from 13-year-old family members? Like, you know, if, if that stuff really exists, even though a lot of it's circulated online, like why hasn't Hunter Biden been arrested yet? If you could find him, it seems like he's completely gone off the grid. And then all the way down to, you know, just the accusations. We all know through all the things I just mentioned how those relationships were established and and the connections were made, which in turn had Hunter Biden into like a, you know, a money-making machine for his family Uh, by using the credibility of Joe Biden. Will we ever get to the bottom of any of that? Well, there's more than enough already out there. Sure. You know, that that we've seen and just in general, it's been leaked from that laptop that would warrant this guy to be indicted and arrested, you know. And then, um, you know, actually, let me point people to whoever's listening right now. There is a lot um, of work being done on this laptop. Like a lot of the information is being disseminated by um, Garrett Ziegler. If you go to his Telegram, you can go. To, um, I also believe, I don't quote me, but Marco Polo, maybe his website as well. He's been doing an amazing job by going through all the contents of the laptop and slowly kind of putting it out there, organizing everything. And I mean, I haven't checked up on him lately, but I know that he's been doing some really good work with that in in regards to the laptop. So if anybody hasn't heard about it, check him out on Telegram and he has a bunch of stuff on there and uh, links to the site that um, where you can sign up as well with a newsletter where they update you on the latest that they've uh, uh, extracted and pulled from that laptop and organized. It's really spicy to say the least yeah there's a lot a lot of stuff on there like thousands and thousands of text messages as well have been recently released by garrett and his team and it's very damning yeah we see a lot of that stuff even it starts to leak out before the election but you know they were so repressed you can thank all your friends at, at twitter and facebook in addition to like the new york times and the washington post who did an yeah. excellent job of, in, in combination with all the, the government agencies that were working against president trump in his bid for re-election the first time um Someone who probably also wasn't working with President Trump in, in collaboration for his reelection the first time was Joe Rogan. You know, he's a middle of the roader, and uh, he's been on record saying Michelle Obama would be a fantastic president. Um, <laughs> but you know what? It came up on the show the other day. I think it was yesterday, and, and, and he really started to dissect this a little bit. I thought the clip was interesting, so I threw it on the show. Let's hear it. You have to have open communication. And the only way you find out if someone's full of shit or if someone's lying or if someone's de- withholding information is to let people talk and let people sort things through. The, inf- the, the truth is messy. There's a lot going on in the world. And yeah. you can't stifle information and debate. It's not healthy for anybody. And you can't do it just because you think your side is correct. It's not good. It's not, it's not what's amazing about a free society. And you can't decide that there's certain ugly aspects of this society that you think should be suppressed because when you do that then people are going to decide your aspect of society is ugly your perspective is ugly if we get a fucking hardcore putin type leader running this country and they start cracking down on legitimate journalists that are exposing corruption then you get into dangerous circumstances and this is the problem that i had with like the new york post article on the biden uh, hunter biden laptop being suppressed it's not that i'm a a, a trump supporter i didn't vote for him I, i didn't vote for any republican ever in my life but you're looking at something that's real information and you're hiding it from people because you don't like the result that you think is going to come out of that information. That's not yeah. that's not how we're supposed to be doing things. 
think he might be voting Republican in the next election, though, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our kind of Republican, you know, like the non-uniparty rhino. Sure. Yeah. Know. I mean, believe me, that I think the biggest, probably the top two key demographics that Joe Biden's like really bleeding and can't, will never be able to stop it right now are, are Hispanics and um, which, um, independent voters. Those yeah. are probably the top two right now. And, and you, you, believe me, you have to consider Joe Rogan uh, an independent voter. I don't really think he's a career Democrat. I think when he says he's never voted a Republican in his life, I'm pretty sure he's uh, someone that voted for Obama. And then aside from that, probably hasn't voted much over the course of his yeah. lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think he probably he's probably only voted for Obama, period. Yeah. No. Like well, a lot of people I know, you know, a lot of people who who thought they were liberals and Democrat, you know. At the time, voted for Obama, and they're hardcore Trump people now. Yeah, and uh, it, listen, it, it's not because they opened their hearts to Donald Trump. It's because they've now seen what the alternative is. All of the things that he platformed on in, in 2016 is going to happen in what he called the most crucial election for the president in the, in the history of, of this country. Uh, a lot of those things are coming to fruition right now. Yep. So, and it's pretty scary. Um, Howard Kurtz was on Fox News Sunday, and uh, he was talking about you know, how embarrassing it was, the whole narrative with the Hunter Biden laptop and, and how it was being mocked, minimized, and downplayed uh, throughout the um, the legacy media even now, which which I think is probably even more important right now in this instance in time as it was back then. Uh, it's not okay just to have, like, the New York Times put out an article in their Sunday paper that said, Joe Biden is, is, is the president of the United States. Now it's time to talk about the Hunter Biden laptop, like, what the fuck kind of a narrative is that? Like, you know, you talk about yeah. these these controlled ops in police states. You know, that's the kind of narrative you get when you live in a in a communist dictatorship. Yeah. So, and, and and you know, see all the people that were absolutely steamrolled along the way uh, is a perfect example of how we get to those places. Let's hear Howard Kurtz right now on Fox News. It's an absolute embarrassment that the way that the media downplayed or ignored or mocked or minimized this story that the New York Times now says is under active federal investigation for possible tax violations or lobbying violations by the president's son. And, and, and they're still not covering it. None of the other networks have touched this story. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that Hunter Biden's going to be indicted. It may or may not have a political fallout for his father. But when you look back at uh, the way uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, for example, said, well, you can't even share this information. Then from the New York Post. This was in the middle of a heated political campaign intended to damage one candidate. Does it matter, Ron Williams? Of Russian no. disinformation. I think we were all properly cautious. It was censorship. It was censorship. That's exactly what it is. See, that's the stuff we get from the... Information. Come on. God, fuck's sake, man. Well, it's Juan Williams. You know, you could take him I for know. what he is. A complete piece of shit and human garbage who just is a speaker box for the other side. He's like that guy on Fox right. News. But, um, you know, it's it, he's just... That's not a, that's, that should never be a popular opinion. Well, we were we were only in the midst of Russian disinformation and all because our government told us we were, but it turns out it never was. Right. It, it's insane. It's like it doesn't matter what side, Republican or Democrat, that shit should have been exposed and not censored. You know, it it, it doesn't matter. Like people need the the people deserve to know the truth and see. Yes. And yeah. and I think that the truth comes from probably the people who are best sourced to talk about it, the expert on the entire narrative, who's already written a New York Times bestseller, Peter Schweitzer, jumped on with Maria on Sunday Morning Futures this week, and I thought it was a great piece. I actually went back and watched the entire interview again because he's been a, such a stud. He wrote a book on everything to do with this and more, which dives 
way deeper into the whole Biden family and Ukraine connection and all the other things going on there. Um, but he gave a pretty good opinion, which kind of gives me hope. Let's hear him right now, Maria. Welcome back. We are back with Peter Schweitzer, the president of the Government Accountability Institute, as we talk about all of the alleged money and deals that Hunter Biden did with officials across the world, particularly in China, Russia and Ukraine. Peter was showing the business deals that includes a three and a half million dollar check from the uh, former uh, mayor of Moscow's wife. Fact. Give us your take on the FBI and the Department of Justice's investigation right now into all of this. Is the FBI investigating Hunter Biden, and could that happen while Joe Biden is president? Yeah, in fact, I think this New York Times piece, the fact that they got cooperation from Team Biden and probably from the Hunter Biden legal team, is an indication to me they are extremely concerned that he is going to be indicted. Mm. This grand jury's been meeting since 2018. They were suspended during COVID because of health care protocols. It's back up and running, and it's very clear that when it comes to the, uh, the issues related to tax evasion and money laundering and the other issues wrapped up with it, they're extremely concerned that Hunter Hunter Biden's going to be indicted. And I think this article is an effort to frame that conversation in a way that can be the most favorable to them. So in other words, while they were trying to impeach Donald Trump, the FBI knew all of this existed. They knew about the laptop and they didn't say anything while Trump was accused of, of, of uh, doing uh, deals or, or, or having a bad phone yes. call with the Ukraine president. Mm. Yes, that's exactly right, Maria. Uh, they knew it all the time, and that deserves investigation as well. Peter, it's great to have you this morning. Thanks very much, Peter Schweitzer. That'll do it. For Good old Chris Ray and friends. Yep. Well, Maria talked about some of that money. She mentioned the $3.5 million that Hunter Biden was given from the former mayor of Moscow's wife. I don't know what her connection to anything is, but that, that check definitely happened. In addition, a lot of people break down the, the Burisma money. I, I saw a good, uh, there was a good bullet point there. So at the end of the day, regardless of how long he did it, $83,000 a month was what he was being paid from Burisma. He's not even qualified to work in that. Nope. 100%. Well, neither is Mitt Romney's kid and neither is Nancy yeah, Pelosi's kid, but they're all working on energy boards in the Ukraine. And then the, the China one, the 10% for the big guy, the total of that was $5.3 million. And that's for who knows what. Yeah, it's just a, it's insane. Yeah. There's so much corruption in it, and it's right there. The FBI knew, all intelligence agencies knew. They did nothing about it. There's way more than just corruption. There's human trafficking, yep. child trafficking, pornography, all that shit. Drugs, a lot of illicit drug use. Yep, and all these people are are connected to it, and. We do have to keep in mind, though, that according to Joe Biden, Hunter Biden is the smartest man he's ever met. <laughs> I just don't know what to do. lied about everything, his education. <laughs> everything. Well, I mean, you're talking about someone who plagiarized his first two, you know, biggest speeches in his presidential campaigns that were failed when talking about Joe Biden. So apples don't far too fall from the tree in that family. But, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's ex-wife, who's in court with him right now for ass loads of money, is also um, hearing that she thinks he's going to be indicted as well. Ooh. Oh, so, yes, I heard that. Actually. So that might be things that the Hunter Biden um, legal team is is kind of using as a counter narrative in court in regards to, you know, oh, we can't figure out, what, you know, what we're going to do with money and, and alimony and child support right now, because we don't know how big of a fine we're going to be getting from the, the federal right. government when we're indicted on all of these charges of corruption and all the other bullshit things that they're going to come up with. But 
who knows? I mean, we're going to have to see. Like he said, started around 2018 when this whole narrative started that the, you know, nobody in the United States knew about. Kind of caught fire in late 2019. And then we saw what happened running up to the presidential election. So we're just going to have to kind of play it by ear. But, you know, we, we kind of finally started to be able to paint you guys a narrative on it because a lot more of the facts are coming out. I wanted to get some dates. I wanted to get some hard money numbers. And, uh, you know, we, we, we took a little trip in the Wayback Machine, but we kind of caught up everybody on, uh, you know, the narrative that's going on with that. And it'll continue to develop and we'll continue to bring you guys, you know, some more news on that. But before we get to anything else, we've got two great interviews that are about to start. We're going to have former ambassador to Denmark, America first candidate running for Senate in Pennsylvania right now. Ambassador Carla Sands is going to be joining us. And then right after her, the CEO of the Patriot podcast network, where you can watch the steak for breakfast podcast exclusively when you download it on the Roku app, Alan Jacoby, are going to be joining us. So as we're getting ready to sit down with Miss Sands, we'll uh, let her audio key up. All right. Coming in with us first today on the steak for breakfast podcast. She's a proud American Pennsylvanian. She is a, the former ambassador to Denmark under the Trump administration. And she's also a candidate for the U S Senate. Carla Sands. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to do this very quirky sounding podcast, Steak for Breakfast. How did that get that name? So before Noah and I joined the show a few years ago, uh, back probably in 2019, there was the originator of the show and it was more of a variety, kind of like a Joe Rogan-ish vibe. They talked politics, but also talked sports, barbecue. They did some beer reviews and then, you know, politics started heating up. And uh, Noah and I jumped in, and then it's kind of snowballed into what it is today. I guess we just get uh, a whole lot of politics done. And uh, fortunately for us, the name is kind of an algorithm beater by all the uh, social media censorship out there. Uh, They see the title of our show, and they just kind of breeze over it, even though we have on all the people that get canceled on everybody else's program. So That's terrific. Yeah, especially for some of our spicy episodes, like when we get Cash Patel in here talking about January 6th and uh, all this stuff going on with the Biden administration. It's pretty. How much? Yeah. How much do we love Cash Patel? So much. He's coming back with Amanda Milius uh, next Tuesday. I love Cash. In fact, so quick story. Um, I had been working to secure the Arctic region, this area, the GIUK gap and Greenland and Faroe Islands. And we had really taken our eyes off that region of the world, but China and Russia had not. They were really doing a lot in trade and in security stuff and all kinds of things they were doing. Um, some I can talk about and some I can't. And I had dinner with Cash Patel and he goes, you know, you're about to get a really big honor. And I was like, well, what? Well, he, he goes, the DOD is giving you their highest civilian honor it's a really big deal. Like presidents get this. And I was like, no way. <laughs> and oh, wow. Yes. And it, it was, uh, it was literally just a little over a year ago that I found this out. He is such a great patriot. What he did with Devin Nunez uncovering all of the corruption uh, was tremendous. He is, he is one of the greatest patriots. He deserves like a medal of freedom from the president. Yeah, he certainly does. And we love when he comes on the show. He's been a reoccurring guest for about a year now, and uh, we've become pretty good friends with him. He's a great guy and uh, definitely, like you said, one of the biggest patriots out there. He just loves this country and is going to do anything to, uh, you know, stand up for it. He goes outside the box a lot with his organization, and uh, he's just starting another one right now. It's going to be helping out, I think, uh, people in the military and uh, federal service who are undergoing you know, what he considers uh, not justified firings for uh, vaccine mandates and stuff like that. It's just it's good to see somebody out there that's just continuing to work once he's done with his service inside the uh, administration. It's definitely solid. 
consequently like you are right now. So let's talk about that. So how's everything with the campaign going right now? We've seen uh, quite an uptick in the uh, battlegroundedness of uh, the state of Pennsylvania over the last few weeks. It's really starting to heat up there. How's everything going with the campaign? The campaign's going great. And we are creating this grassroots army across the Commonwealth. I mean, a big Commonwealth, right? Pennsylvania, about 12 and a half million people. It's a really, I think it's probably the fifth largest uh, economic state in the country. I believe. And it's been going in the wrong direction for about 40 plus years, where a lot of jobs and companies literally moved uh, to Asia and other countries. They moved production, they moved the, the jobs, basically. And over the decades, that's really hollowed out a really prosperous place, Pennsylvania. And so um, my mission is to bring prosperity back, to change the direction, the course of Pennsylvania, working with whoever is elected governor bringing opportunity, highly skilled jobs, uh, jobs that people can stay in the Commonwealth and raise their family on one earner salary, that would be the goal. And then also uh, make sure that we welcome companies and so that at the federal level and the state level. And I wanna be Pennsylvania's energy Senator. I've been saying that since I've been running and now I called on the main stage of CPAC about three weeks ago and Mm -hmm. I'll say it on your program I'm calling for Operation Warp Speed for American energy to bring back American energy dominance. What Joe Biden did is in one year, he undid our progress on energy. So we can put it back in one year. And if we can harmonize the federal regulations and state level regulations and the permitting, we can really at lightning speed harvest and put the pipes in, move the energy around so that we don't have to buy blood energy from places like Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. And then we should pipe some of it to our coast and send it to our friends and allies so they're not uh, you know, buying Russian energy. We can see how destabilizing that is. Sure, it certainly is. It's one of the things that continue to confuse us even to this day on this show. You know, we had saw going into the 2020 presidential election, Joe Biden, for the very few places he did campaign, get out to places in Pennsylvania and have some really bad sound takes on on at some of the uh, events he was hosting, telling blue collar men and women, people who were in the energy sector, uh, you know, right to their faces that he was going to literally cancel their jobs and then somehow won that state. It just makes very little sense to us still to this day and, and, and is definitely one of the things that we know all the people who are running for like America First seats and, and positions in his state are going to hold him accountable for. Absolutely. You know, Joe Biden and his administration's war on Pennsylvania energy and Pennsylvania farmers, and I just also nationwide war on our energy and our farming is really uh, astonishing how how much overreach this administration and the leftists in America are, are overreaching. If you look at the Green New Deal regulations that they stuffed into these big multi-trillion dollar deals, uh, bills, sorry, bills that they've been passing since he's been elected, we can see that they're attempting to regulate everything, but they really have a war on our energy and our farmers. We even saw one of his nominees said, well, we should debank yeah. uh, the energy sector. And then uh, another one said, uh, what was it? Oh, we're going to federalize banking. We're going to, all the all the money, everyone deposits is going to come to the federal government. Can you imagine? I mean, that is, that's like Soviet Union, uh, old school uh, kind of uh, roll up of of industry and and sectors. I, I've never seen anything like it in America. I never expected to see it. But what really matters here in Pennsylvania, I would say, is when people go to the gas station 
and they're filling up their tank and it's almost double what it was just a little over a year ago and they still have to buy food and everything at the grocery store because of the inflation that Biden caused, uh, everything costs a lot more. And then they have to buy clothes and you know shoes for their kids. I don't know how our working families and our f- seniors on fixed incomes are doing it because right. this is it's it's so horrific what this administration has done just in a little over a year. I, when people are filling up their tank, if your listeners are are in Pennsylvania, if they're filling up their tank, I really want them to think who's going to lower the cost of this gas that I'm putting in my car because I'm the one. I want to be Pennsylvania's energy senator. I worked on these issues as the U.S. ambassador. I know what to do. And we already know what to do because we were doing it under the previous administration. And uh, and I will lower the cost of that energy. And that's going to help our economy. But it's also going to be very important for our national security because we know energy is not just a commodity. It's a weapon, too. And Putin has certainly shown us that. Yeah, that's an excellent point you make there. And it definitely ties into a lot of the, uh, you know, current events that are going on right now, which is what I want to jump into next with you. What do you think about this whole situation that's going on with, with Russia and, and Ukraine? There's a, there's definitely two sides to this coin. I mean, obviously, we're, we're no big fans of Vladimir Putin on this show and all the stuff that he's done. Uh, but, but at the same time, there's been a lot of funny business that's been happening inside of Ukraine since the Trump administration, namely with the perfect phone call and, and all things surrounded by that, in addition to the fact that you had Ukrainian high-ranking officials coming over to the United States to take anti-corruption trainings and stuff through like the Department of Defense during the Trump administration as well it's kind of spiraled out of control uh you know we see a lot of uh it's a combination of uh you know chest puffing and and virtue signaling from people on both sides of the aisle but you know surprisingly it's pretty funny to see some of the people in dc literally calling for the assassination of uh you know other nations presidents and and unprovoked attacks of their uh military while operating inside of a war zone of another country what's your whole take on the whole thing and where do you see this eventually going All right. That is a lot to unpack. I'm sorry, but I'm going to try to tackle it. Um, First of all, many countries have been working with Ukraine to help them to fight Mm -hmm. corruption. The United States is one. Denmark, where I was working, is another. So, you know, I was briefed by Kurt Volker before I went because these are important issues that the United States really takes the lead on and our allies help. Ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And unfortunately, or fortunately, we're now aware and we were during the 2020 election that Joe Biden's family, Hunter Biden specifically, has been profiting and the Biden family from their interactions in Ukraine. There's corruption. We see there's corruption with Russia as well and China. It's all coming to light. And now the New York Times even said, well, yeah, it's all true. There was so much election interference by Twitter, by Uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, he interfered with the election, not just with the Zuckerbucks, but suppressing that New York Post story about that laptop. Mm -hmm. But we also had former uh, intelligence agents, uh, even the heads of the agencies come out before that election and say, oh, this is Russian interference. They interfered with the election too. They have to be held accountable. What they did is wrong. It should never happen again in America. What what the, I will just say bureaucracy or the, um, I'll just say the bureaucracy, what the bureaucracy, the blob did to Donald Trump and then to help bolster the current president, unbelievable. And it should never happen again. But getting back to Ukraine, of course, we don't want to assassinate 
someone, the leader of a large country. Are these people thinking through like the unintended consequences that happen? We watched when Hillary Clinton went in, remember? Susan Rice and Valerie Jarrett and took out Gaddafi and what that led to. You have to think what it, and also it's not the right thing to do. There are better ways to get things done. I like when, so I won't go into Soleimani, what President Trump did, but anyway, um, <laughs> what we need to do is make sure we don't get dragged into a war, a NATO war with Russia, with China backing them up. That would be a terrible situation. This is not our fight. This is Europe's fight. And we're certainly helping with training and weapons and aid, but um, this isn't America's fight. And, and I, again, just calling out President Joe Biden, if he hadn't turned on that Nord Stream 2 pipeline and lifted the threat of sanctions, which that Russian gas pipeline, my team and I blocked that. The only place it wasn't built was in Danish waters. And then when, when the um, issue with being in Danish waters, when we couldn't press any further, we had the threat of sanctions. So it did not get completed the whole time I was at post. And then we know the story, what happened a few right. months after Biden was elected, he he said, go ahead. But the, on day one of his administration, he killed that XL Keystone, the Keystone XL pipeline and 11,000 good paying jobs. So uh, what I see from this president is he's really at war with the American people, American values, American energy. And, um, I, you know, that's why we have to elect America first senators and congressmen this year and then in 2024 a Republican America first president to stop the damage that's being done to our country and the world. Yeah. I like how you sent that back to me. You gave me quite a lot of stuff to unbox back myself and uh, <laughs> we're going to walk through it right now. As far as foreign policy goes, you you are 100% right. And that's the way we've been breaking it down since before this conflict started, because you could see it coming from a mile away. Um, and it's one of the things with the assault on our domestic energy sector, combined with the leniency and lack of leadership everywhere from the office of the president all the way down to the to the joint chiefs and the people that serve unto them led to this disaster. And now we have it to where we're at a point to where some of our most common, common allies are not even answering the phone when, when we're calling to try and work on things uh, diplomatically with them. And, and then in turn, working with some of our, I mean, I guess you, they're not enemies, but adversaries on, on the global stage when it comes to oil, when it comes to, you know, defense issues and, and where they're buying their weapons from and stuff like that. And it's just pretty interesting to see, you know, the, the way things are kind of unfolding right now. But we do 100% agree with you. And that's actually been a lot of the uh, narrative that we've been holding on this show. You know, both uh, nations have a lot of issues. Both nations have gone through a lot, um, you know, and, and but this is Europe's fight. This is for us to, you know, lead by example, to lead by being a strong nation and knowing that we're going to have these uh, other countries who are, you know, in close proximity to the regions back, Um in other ways we can, but, you know, calling for A-10s to attack parked Russian convoys and for the assassination of Vladimir Putin is definitely not how, you know, you're ever going to get things done, which, you know, is one of the questions I want to lead to next. So you mentioned America First candidates, and there's a lot of them running. You're definitely one of the top ones. And, and we see some of the battleground states, the way they're kind of shaping up. We see some assaults coming from the establishment GOP in states like Missouri, Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania, especially. Uh, candidates who don't necessarily align with President Trump are getting more support from the establishment GOP in Washington, while Donald Trump continues to promote you know, people in, in places like Arizona, Ohio, and, of course, in Pennsylvania with yourself as well. What do you think that the the, you know— 
big deal is here. I heard you say the blob. Our audience knows it uh, a little bit uh, differently. We call it the administrative state and how much that can gum up the works. We saw it from the start of the Trump presidency when they collaborated with the Republicans and then after the midterm elections in 2018 uh, to work with the Democrats to uh, do whatever they could to slow down Donald Trump's agenda, even though he was able to get more stuff done than probably any other president in modern times. Um, yeah. What do you think this big pushback is from the Beltway? Is is it fear of losing power? Is it, you know, okay, the America First movement seems like a good idea, but now there's so many of these candidates out of there. There's a bunch in the Senate, probably, you know, a dozen that are running right now. There's dozens in the House, and, and we've had so many of them on the show. What, what do you think it is that's scaring the people over there? Well, I think it's complicated. So every person in my race on the Republican side is saying that they're America first, mm -hmm. which is hilarious because some of them are Jeb Bush Republicans. Yep. <laughs> some are former Democrats until recently. Um, what we know is that there's only one America first candidate in Pennsylvania. I'm the only one who helped support President Trump in 2016, worked to help him get elected, served on his uh, economic advisory council, his transition, and then as his you know, appointed ambassador representing all of your listeners. Uh, in, in Copenhagen, putting America first, creating thousands of jobs here at home and helping to secure the region uh, against foreign adversaries. And so uh, everybody says it because they know they need those Trump voters. Right. But the Trump voters can only trust someone who's actually who has the receipts. And I have a public record of what I've done. Uh, nobody else does. And I think, you know, I've also, I am a staunch Republican lifelong, and I've helped get every single Republican president elected since I've been an adult. Mm. I mean, whether they won or not, I worked for them, I raised money, I contributed, I worked in the trenches. And, um, you know, and a lot of them elected or not elected, uh, unsuccessful, did not put America first. They were globalists, and we see it by the fruit of what they do. And so um, I believe that American Republican voters have rejected globalism as a group. We have a small minority, the Jeb Bush Republicans, who love it because they profit from it. But as a matter of fact, that's why Pennsylvania's cities and towns hollowed out was the globalists and the federal and state administration, how they incentivized companies to move their production offshore. And what happened is we had unbelievably good jobs here in Pennsylvania and a thriving economy where one earner could support a family really comfortably. Now it takes two earners, wages haven't kept up, jobs and companies moved away. That's what President Trump worked to turn around. And I think he created around 750,000 new manufacturing jobs, new. That's what I want to be, is the America first uh, senator. And Voters can trust that that's what I'll do because that's what I've always do. So done. So I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to get into office and then say, oh, well, that was then and this is now. Not at all. I'm going to put the farmers and the folks here in Pennsylvania first because I have a servant's heart. I'm ready on day one to be in the Senate. Nobody else is. Nobody else worked on like the foreign policy issues, worked with NATO. I worked with NATO and the Pentagon. Uh, over and over again. It was ongoing uh, work, working with the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Senate and Congress in order to get good things done. And so if I believe these are serious times because we are at war and we have a weak leader uh, of the free world leading from behind. Uh, 
we, this is, it requires a serious senator, serious candidate, someone who understands the issues. There's no time to get up to speed and ramp up. We're going to have to get our arms around this on day one. And, and I'm the only one that, that is there for that. And we agree with you on that narrative. Ambassador, last question I want to ask you, we've done a lot of the uh, math in regards to the midterm elections. We've, we've had some, some experts come on the show. Uh, Boris from the War Room has been on with us most recently, and we kind of broke down some of the things. We went, we went over some of the top House seats and then, of course, some, the hottest Senate races. The way we see it right now is we're, we're most likely going to defend the 50 seats we have now, and then you get into that gray area of how many seats are we going to be able to flip. Places like Nevada is, is definitely one that's in play, and there are a couple others. And now, in Pennsylvania, uh, we have to get a Republican senator in there, one who's America first. And, and what do you think in regards once you get there, and, and this is what comes to adding these extra seats, uh, is it time for a real change in leadership in the Republican Party at the Senate level? Well, first of all, in my race in Pennsylvania, there are three of us in double digits. Yep. Two guys, they're a different lane than me. My lane is bright and it's conservative because I'm the, I am the pro-life, pro-First Amendment, pro-Second Amendment, constitutional conservative, and I will say America first uh, businesswoman and mom and, and Christian as well. And that's important in Pennsylvania, voters care. Um, the other two people in double digits are, are in a different lane. I'll just call it a more traditional or different kind of Republican lane. So looking at the race here in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of attacks going on by some of my opponents, yep. you know, attacking each other publicly. And I'm focused on the people here in Pennsylvania and what they need. I'm a problem solver and I'm, you know, I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and work for them. How do I see it? I think it's ours to lose, but we have to have a real conservative that the voters trust because otherwise I don't think they're going to come out yeah. and vote because they're so tired of sending weak Republicans to Washington. And then they're watching us lose our country because the left is relentless. It just keeps taking and Republicans keep, you know, they kind of step on their back foot and they keep compromising. Mm -hmm. And then we see them with women's sports. They see, we see them with trying to sexualize our little children yeah. with even this new Supreme court justice. Like, the, the left is relentless and the right seems to try to go along to get along. I'm, I'm sorry. It is our turn to take back our great country, to protect our culture and our heritage, to protect our constitutional rights and, and our liberties, which are so under attack. Just look at free speech for one. And so um, I do believe the voters are watching really, really carefully. I, in Pennsylvania, it seems there are two sports in, in here in this state. One is sports and one is politics. Yes. And sometimes, sometimes that people follow both, but people are really very, very invigorated about this race because they know how important it is. I believe taking back the Senate does run through Pennsylvania. Yes. It's the keystone state. So we can call it the key to taking it back, uh, but it's not going to be easy because the left is going to throw so much money into this state and they are they really want it they want to win and we have a guy john fetterman on the left who's to the left of bernie sanders yes who raised more money than anybody else and and uh he he you know i believe i'm the only person who can beat this guy because our voters they don't want what the left is selling but he's going to try to dress it up real pretty and make it look appetizing but we know we know what it leads to and we don't want to become venezuela we want pennsylvania to thrive and stay free 
Sure, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and oh, can I say my website to you? Yeah, I was I was just going to ask you now. Say this is, was awesome having you on with us today for a first time. Obviously, we're going to keep tracking you and supporting you as we've been doing, you know, since you jumped in this race here. And hopefully, after the primary season, as you're heading into the generals, we're going to be able to get you back with an update. But b- before we let you go, we want to be able to direct as much traffic as we can to help you. Uh, your you. social medias and campaign website, please. Yeah. So my my website is carlasands.com. Carlasands.com. Um, and if you're in Pennsylvania, I'd love it if you'd sign up to volunteer. We need door knockers, people to do phone banking or helping with get out the vote. I'm also really engaged with the faith community. Uh, my parents founded a church in our living room when I was a kid that now has thousands of members. And so wow. um, we're very engaged with the faith, com- faith community here in central Pennsylvania and now in the West as well. So I hope that if they're involved in, in their church and they want to talk to people about volunteering, I'd love it. And then um, we also are on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Follow us. And we we need your help. We can't I can't do it alone. I need I need your listeners help also to finance this because uh, Pennsylvania is a big, expensive state. So anything anybody can do, throw our way. Appreciate it. Yeah, we've got a really interactive listenership, uh, Ambassador, and it'll be great to uh, see them finally jumping on and uh, getting in there to support you. We're going to live link everything in today's show description, and then we're going to put a standalone clip from this interview with you up a little bit later in the week. Thank you so much. It's really great to talk to you guys. Yeah, and we look forward to having you back at some point in the future. This is the former ambassador to Denmark and current America First candidate for the U.S. Senate, Ambassador Carlos Sands. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thanks so much. Bye now. All right, jumping in next with us today on the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He is the CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network. He's also the host of the Great Divide podcast. Mr. Alan Jacoby, thanks for joining us today. What's up, my friends of the Steak for Breakfast podcast? Roan, Antoinette, what's going on? Oh, you know, the usual podcasting, being busy. <laughs> How's everything going with you, Alan? Good, good. You know, it's funny. I'm not used to that yet. The CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network. I, I have learned recently, I guess, uh, within the past month, how much the word patriot triggers. <laughs> <laughs> people on the left it is (laughs) unbelievably all out of salt that we have been getting on social media and i I, i'm imagining a lot of it's from bot farms and things but there are some legitimate people on there and it's just unbelievable and it just makes me it makes me happy that it it triggers so many people oh yeah definitely seems like you found your niche to say the least (laughs) i love it too though it's hilarious when you see them get so triggered by something so trivial it's like <laughs> a word, a word. And then immediately they put that patriot word with, well, you're a white. So, yeah, you're a white supremacist. You're an insurrectionist. You, you're in the you're in the Trump cult. I mean, it's amazing where that word takes you. Yeah, it's every talking same talking point, you know, that the media does. And I mean, I'm I'm kind of used to it by now since 2016, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but it's, it's worse now than ever, to be fair. But it's fun. Yeah, it certainly is. Let's talk, yeah. about, <laughs> let's talk about things that aren't fun first. How much work did it take putting this thing together, Alan? And uh, let's get an update on everything soup to nuts on the Patriot Podcast Network. We've talked about it on our show extensively, but it's good to hear it from the, uh, you know, one of the founders here uh, about all the things you got going on with that. Let's, let's talk about it. how did this idea come, come to you? What is it exactly and where it's at right now? And, and what's everything going on with it? Well, it, it was an idea. You know, obviously, even your show and my show, we're in this we're in this group that uh, just came to fruition over Instagram where 
all of our podcasts were uh, collaborating with each other. Uh, we found each other listening and watching each other. And we've all, I guess at this point, I'm going to call it the, the Patriot podcast family that we formed. And I had this idea, well, you know, you have one show that's banned on YouTube. You have another show that's banned here and all of this censorship that's going on. And my idea was, Hey, who's doing this? Who's taking shows like ours and putting it on internet TV, like, like Roku, Roku TV. And one of, one of the shows who gave me the idea, he has his show up. There was uh, Justin from cannabis and combat. And I, I spoke to him and said, Hey, Hey, Justin, how do you go about doing it? And he gave me the information and then it just started to snowball, you know, you know, you and I, you and I had a conversations and I, I believe you were one of the first shows, if not the first show I approached and said, Hey, I have this idea. Are you interested? And as soon as you guys said you were interested, I knew this was going to be something good. And, oh. and, you know, I, you guys, I, you know, and I, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but you, you're my favorite show. No. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying that it's, it's, you guys have a great show and it, it's, it's, um, it, it's, with, there's a lot of great shows and right. Like right now we have, I believe as of today, we have 18 shows on the platform, Wow, some smaller ones, some medium sized ones and some large ones. And it, it's going to keep growing. Cause I have other shows I have to speak with that want to come on the platform. So it took, I'd say about maybe three or four months to get everything rolling with developers and, and the service and Roku themselves, the programming, and we actually we have to make sure we give props to the other founder, my partner, Bob. Yeah. You know, he's 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 the back end guy with the programming because uh, the, the tech stuff doesn't work, work with me. Um, <laughs> Ron, Ron, we know that works with, with, with you also. <laughs> oh, yeah. Noah is definitely our Bob. And the funny thing is, you know, for all the stuff we we always tell Noah, he's doing such a good job with on the show. I couldn't imagine if he had to do it for 17 other ones. Right. Right. You know, great point. You know, it's another thing I, I, I take your show and you have, you, you have shows out there and you have powerhouse guests, but not just one, you have, you know, five guests in a show and people don't realize that the editing that has to go into a show like that, because it's not live and, and there's so much involved. And with, with the network, it's, it's that, there's no editing involved, but uh, just the programming and making sure everybody's, you know, uh, content is where it needs to be and, and, and uploaded. It's a lot. But this whole thing now, Roku TV, it's an Internet streaming platform like Apple TV, like Amazon Fire. And I believe there's a few others out there. I chose Roku because Roku has the largest amount of monthly users. They're about 55 million and growing. And. I, it's, it's, to me, it's a, it's a different audience. It's a different platform. It's something that where shows like ours aren't exposed to. Right. Now, you know, now we're on TV, everybody, you know, (laughs) we're, we're, we're TV stars (laughs) in a sense. And it's only been, it's been up since March 1st and it's gaining traction. It's with not a lot of heavy marketing. We're doing some, some small things right now, but word of mouth between all the shows where, we have a lot of people, a lot of eyes on the network. And for anyone out there that has a, a Roku compatible smart TV or the actual Roku device, all they have to do is go to their search bar and type in Patriot Podcast Network. It'll come up with just the, your first few uh, letters of the word Patriot, I believe. You add it into your 
channel app absolutely free added into your device and then you have us all in your living room you know you can uh, either listen to us or some of us who do video you could stare at our ugly mugs and <laughs> it's it, what's good about it it's not an echo chamber like you know a lot of us are on the on the on the conservative you know side the right-leaning side but we have some libertarians we have people on there that don't claim a party we have straight up conspiracy theorists we have people that are not fans of Donald Trump. We have people that are big fans of Donald Trump and we all have done shows together where we've gotten into these conversations and we don't agree on everything. And that brings me back to the word patriot being such a trigger word because everybody on social media that's been attacking us is, well, you're all right wing extremists. And we, and we know that's not true. I could just one show two doomed men, you know, mm-hmm. You have you have Skaggs on there that that is uh, I I would label him as as middle of the road. He's not a fan of Donald Trump and he doesn't have all the the conservative values say that maybe I do. And I think that's great. Um, Yeah, I think we're in a good spot. We're going to continue to grow. And, you know, we need all of our audiences to make sure that they're they're tuning in and and they're because, again, there may be a listener uh, of my show that doesn't know who steak for breakfast is, although I, I find that hard to believe. Or there may be a show that uh, someone that watches your show that don't know who I am. And now we're all on the same network and, and we're, 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 we're getting these like-minded people or these uh, America-loving people to watch and listen to all of our shows. I just think it's a great thing. I'm, I'm excited about it. Every day I get more excited. Yeah, it's definitely been something that uh, we were interested in from when you you know thought up the idea, and now we're a few weeks out from the launch, and it it seems to be just doing great. And and like you mentioned, you get it a whole bunch of different flavors and kind of like the same thread. And then you know, let's just say you're a certain fan of like one show, say ours or yours or one of the other ones you mentioned. You don't necessarily have to wait in between you know episodes now to get kind of a taste of like you know the same kind of narrative or maybe broke down a little bit more or differently so or or just completely on the other side of the coin you you get a whole lot of uh variety when you tune into the network and uh it's definitely something that's 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 growing you know even in its uh beginning stages right now we we you there's even people on the on the channel that are going live at some point of the day right yeah we have um like at, at 1030 Eastern Monday to uh, Monday to Friday, we have Natalie Denise with her, uh, her, I think it's a, the, the daily traffic show or, or, or the unravel with Natalie Denise. And she has a big show. She does a lot on, on human trafficking and the border and things like that. And then we have, I believe at uh, 830 uh, PM Eastern Monday to Friday, we have Josh from red pills TV. It was another very big show. And we're going to be, uh, we're going to be adding some more, some more actual live streaming shows, uh, in, in various spots and there'll be some new shows coming up. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh, looking forward to that stuff. And of the names you mentioned too, not going live, but, but still participating in the show. You got people like Mike Crispy who have joined on, uh, from, from right side broadcasting with his red, white and truth podcast. In addition to some others, which, uh, you know, we're all huge fans of, you want to talk about some of those future projects, maybe one involving us moving down the road. <laughs> okay, since you, <laughs> since 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 you gave the green light, I guess it's a uh, yeah. I spilled the I spilled the beans on on another show uh, recently, <laughs> but and this is something I'm really excited about, and this is going to be something that obviously is going to you're going to be able to get it on audio platforms, but exclusive live every Saturday morning at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern. I, I I know you guys are on the opposite side of the world I am, so I just <laughs> stick with the Eastern time. What is it? What is 10 a.m. Eastern for you guys? 7 a.m. out here. 7 a.m. Yeah. So it's an early morning for you guys, but we're going to be doing a, a, a brand new show, a collaboration show called the Great 
steak breakfast. And that's a combination of my show, The Great Divide, and a combination of your show, The Steak for Breakfast podcast. And it's going to be uh, all of us just I, I think it's going to be great because your show is so it's um structured. You have a very structured show. My show, I'd say, is structured to some point, but I I'm a bit more of a ranter and, and I, I go off the rails and we're all going to come together and at the end of every week on Saturday morning and just have, and I think, ha- I think it's going to be fun because we could talk about everything that went on during the week and other stuff. And, and it's going to be live on the Patriot podcast network on Roku. And, and yeah, I'm excited. I don't know about you guys, but I'm really excited about it. We, we've, we've been talking about this for a, a while now and it's, 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 it's coming together. Yeah, I think it's going to be great, you know, especially, you know, we're not we don't really do lives as well. So and then all of our you know personalities and all of us kind of combined, I think will be bring a new flavor. Absolutely. Whole thing. Yeah. And I, it's awesome. I'm excited. I think, yeah. And I, and I think if, if everything goes right with, you know, again, technology, yeah. um, it, I think we're going to be launching, I think, the first Saturday in April, I think April 2nd at 10 a.m. Eastern on Patriot Podcast Network. I think we're set to do our our first live show and we're going to do it every every saturday morning which it's going to be fun you know it's just uh rolling out of bed and uh <laughs> and my robe <laughs> roll, rolling rolling at, rolling out of bed and start start rapping about what's going on and, and 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 other things but um yeah that's uh there's more shows i think that are going to be coming on and i and i i think some influential eyes are starting to to see the network i'm there's some buzz going on out there. I'm getting asked questions from from um, large names in the political spectrum about, hey, uh, what would you do if this is possible or or, or this? So right. it's um, it's exciting to see what's going to happen with the network in the next, I'd say, three to six months. Yeah, it, it's nice to see the process, you know, from beginning to now. I mean, obviously, we're still like barely it's very new, but to see how fast, like even with our show, you know, after I, I got on, I started to see the progress and, and how much we started to grow. And I was like, oh, crap, you know, wow, look at all these amazing guests, too, that are coming on. And right. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like with the Patriot, you know, podcast network and the channel. And I, I don't see it not going, you know, up from here and just kind of blowing up. And it reminds me of like when I was in the like Hollywood, you know, seeing like, you know, the process of a movie or a production, you know, just kind of come to life and fruition. And I feel like that whole process is, is very similar to this. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm getting really good feedback and, and good vibes, you know, yeah. um, I think we've got a really good, good group of people, you know, that we've already had, I mean, you said 18 shows now, right? Yeah. There's eight as of today, there's 18 shows. Yeah, man, that's, and it's very diverse too. So there's something for everyone and it's only going to get better. I'm actually even open to a left leaning show. I, 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 idea, I, 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 was I thinking that <laughs> I've, I've been scoping out some, I don't know how they would feel about it. They may get triggered with the word Patriot. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I did have my eyes on a few that I was going to, I was going to reach out and say, Hey, yeah, we, we don't agree on anything, but we're, we're, we might be looking for some diversity. If there's a show, me listen. I, there are there are left leaning, very left leaning podcasts that follow my show. I've seen them uh, subscribe to in certain platforms to right. my show, which yeah. surprises me. And if they ha- happen to listen to this, or and I say it on my show, reach out, reach out to me on social media uh, at the Great Divide, and and tell me, hey, 
we might be interested in coming on because I'm I'm not opposed to it. Even if you got on the network and ripped me apart every week, I'd be okay with that. Just 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 come on and be willing to do it. You know, something you said, Antoinette, about about the the progress. I've learned um, now not in, in this industry, not to be a numbers chaser. OK, yeah. you know, because you can get obsessive about it, about the about oh, yeah. followers, about the viewers, the 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 downloads and everything else. And you guys are doing this longer than I have. You guys, compared to my show, have a tremendous show. But I'm I'm happy with the progress of my show. I'm doing this just over a year. And I never thought, OK, so I was going to start this as a hobby. My wife breaks my yeah. chops about this all the time, she says, because I'm an overdoer. She said, you're going to start a podcast as a hobby. Yeah. because I'm a Facebook fugitive. Then all of a sudden I have, I'm having Roger Stone on my show eight times. I've become friendly with him and now I own an internet TV network. So right. yeah, this, this, this was supposed to be just a hobby. And right. now this is, this is where we are. It's interesting. It's crazy. That's so funny because that's exactly how it started out for me. Cause I retired from Hollywood, you know, and, and broadcasting, acting and all that stuff. And my husband's like, you know, um, retired, very young, living the life, you know, have a little baby now. And I'm, and, you know, when Rowan asked me to come on, I was like, oh, you know, before that, a lot of people asked me to, to join their podcasts or, you know, to kind of get my feet wet. But when yeah. Rowan asked me, it was some, there was something that told me, you know what, let me do it, you know, as a hobby, have fun, you know, talk, you know, politics. And I did not expect it, to be fair, to to be what it is now. We grew right. really quickly. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, we've got Cash Patel, Amanda Million, Amanda Millius, all these. Right you know, people running, you know, for office and it just keeps growing. And like you said about numbers, like I've even told Ron, like I, you know, especially since we we're on these platforms that censor, right. Yeah. I wouldn't look at the numbers. I would just look at the progress and like what we're doing and the people that are calling us now to come on and, right. and you know, the exposure that we're getting and the content and people are really, you know, the feedback and like you said, don't get obsessed with numbers. It's good to look at them once in a while just to see even if they're censored, you know, but right. now that we're on Roku, it's a different story. You know, we have exposure to 50 plus million people. We're all in a great group now. And I mean, I just see this popping, you know, just skyrocketing from here on out. As long as we all keep doing what we've been doing, that is seems to be working and you know, just give people what they want. Like you said, too, I, I really think it's a good idea if we did get somebody from the left, you know, hopefully. Hey, hello, if you're listening, hit us up. But yeah, it's true. I mean, even if they had a contact with any of these shows on there, you know, I I have a few other conspiracy theory shows that I have to reach out to that they they want it. They want to come on. We we got another another big show. I forget about her. Um, <clears throat> uh, She's uh was it she's oh, I, I'm going to butcher the name, Li the real Lindsey Graham, not the senator, the real Lindsey Graham, oh, yeah. the pa Patriot Barbie. When uh, I got connected with her, she was very excited to come on. And her show is about to explode because now she's also on Salem Media. Yeah, oh. that's and, big. and they're yeah, huge. And they're they're putting billboards around Arizona, huge highway billboards with oh, her and her shoe on it, uh, her <laughs> and her show on it. Uh, oh, she's so right. Show it says she's so right. Show Lindsey okay. Graham and. She's so right now she's audio only, but she's on the network and 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 she's we, was so excited about it. But they, they're actually going to be starting to do uh, to do video soon. But, 
yeah, that's just that's just another 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 large show that's going to explode. And then again, you have you have Mike Crispy, Red, White, and Truth, who when he live streams on Getter can get you know twenty thousand people watching him. And and now he's he brought his show, and he's a, I got to know him really well. I've been been uh, attending some of his congressional um, campaigns. Matter of fact, I'm going to see him in Jersey this week at a uh, Trump's uh, golf club uh, in Jersey with nice. uh, Roger, Roger Stone, another big event for Mike Crispy. I hope he wins. I really do. I He's working hard right now in that race up against Chris Smith. It's good to see him uh, getting so much traction and uh, really resonating with the, with the uh, voter base over there in uh, New Jersey. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Let me ask you, Ant- Antoinette, what was, was the, was the deciding factor to jump on, on, as a co-host on steak for breakfast, it's, it's gotta be that adorable face Roan has, right? It has to be, yeah. it had to have been the zero percent. We only talked on the phone before she came on. No. Well, you know, I was pleasantly surprised after I saw him too, even though I'm married, obviously this is just, you know, admiration, but no, you know, it was Noah and, and Roan, like just who they are as people and yeah. their nature. And I saw, you know, what they've done already with their show. And it just gave me really, you know, really good feeling. Cause you know, like I said, I came from Hollywood and I would, I was very selective about any job I did. I would turn down huge jobs just because I did not agree with them or, you know, morally, you know, they, it didn't align with what I wanted to do. And I, and I said to myself, if I'm going to attach my name to anything, especially a podcast, you know, it's got to be the right one. And when Rona Noah approached me, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do it. You know, and I and I'm so happy that I did it, and I took that leap of faith. You know, even my husband, he like you know, encouraged me. He's like, "Come on, man, you know, like do it. You're awesome at this. You love, you know, you love this stuff. You know, you don't have to worry about working and making money. I mean, we have our own business and we right. work from home and stuff. So, you know, we still kind of work in that way. But, you know, there's no pressure outside anywhere else besides, you know, children. <laughs> you know, to yeah. our babies. <laughs> so, you know. I'm just so glad I did it. And I feel so blessed that they, that they even asked me and it kind of, you know, the stars aligned, you know, it was fate. And I believe everything happens for a reason when it's supposed to happen. And, 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 you know, it happened yeah. the way it was supposed to. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that I did honestly, because I got to meet so many great people, including you and, you know, oh. many others that have come on the show and, and it makes me feel like I'm doing something for the community as well, because, you know, you know, fake news is dying now and we are the news now. And it's our job as a people to, you know, do our part in any which way that we can. And, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah. Look at the way it's like the way we connected with Alan. You know, we, we, we had him on the show a couple of times and really liked it. Me and him, we talk almost every day now. And now we're in this business venture together moving forward and uh, growing this platform on uh you know, a lot bigger thing than we were able to do individually, just let's say a month ago. And uh, it's been a great transformation, definitely a lot of growth and uh, learning process throughout the the whole thing that we've all kind of, uh, you know, have taken as as good and bad experiences. And I think for the most part, there's a lot of really good decision makers to use very good to determine or, um, um, you know, they have a good instinct of, of what, you know, needs to happen to, you know, make things better. I don't think there's a lot of people who are, at least in this, uh, you know, closed community right here who are looking to just like increase the size of their wallets or their followership. It's uh, more about just getting the word out and having people informed and, and really enjoying what we do at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. I think okay. it's a good thing that we're all like, you know, 
the thing, the difference that I see with like liberals on the left, like they all band together to, you know, yeah. to, you know, and, mob and, mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like we need to do more of that, not in the way that they do, but the concept of it, you know, and us banding together all, you know, like what we're doing right now, for example, with the, sh- with the network it is a really good thing. And I think that a lot of people are going to start, you know, seeing that model and maybe trying to emulate it. And I don't, and I mean, it's not like a, it's a bad thing, you know, even if no. they become competition, but that's what we want. We're not in this, you know, for any other reason, obviously, you know, for it to do well, of course, you know, money, we're not even thinking about money. I no. mean, we don't, we don't make any money, but the point of this is, is to, you know, inform the people and to do our part. And if success comes from it, even if it's monetary down the road, amazing, you know, that just, right. we, we deserve it, you know, because and we it, work hard and we're in the negative, if anything, when it comes to this. And I think people need to understand that, like the people, people assume that, um, you know, there's this like all patriot bullshit that goes around. People are saying, oh, if you know, they're selling merch or they're, you know, making money. But who the hell do you think pays the bills? Like, right. how, like, how do you think this like, this ship stays afloat? <laughs> right. You know, like I, I literally started this. The Patriot Podcast Network is not making any money. Yeah, I, I have put in thousands of dollars of my own money, which I I'm, I'm blessed enough that I can and keep this going. I'm in this for the long haul. And of course I'm looking for advertisers and sponsors that want to support great shows, the alternative news, citizen journalists, podcasters, whatever you want to call us. And not to sit back and make a million dollars. Like, like Antoinette, you have a, you have a business, Rona Noah work, I have several businesses and I'm doing this. Be- it's more about the messaging. Yeah. yeah. Do I, I do I want this to be successful and make money? Yes, but more so for the just functioning of the network. And at some point, I'd love it to take off where the network is paying the content creators. And then eventually, maybe then when I'm happy, I can draw an income from right. it. But it, to me, it's the network first. So any money that is going to be made through the Patriot Podcast Network is going into the network first. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, and that's, that's, that's my plan. You know, the website's being worked on and I'm a perfectionist. That's why it's not up yet. And then we're talking phone apps with either your iPhone or your Android. Like I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm hoping that one day we're talking and we have 50 shows on the network. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. And that would be amazing. And I don't see how that can't, can't happen. <laughs> I agree. And to any shows out there that watch or my show or, or listen to Steak for Breakfast, if, if you're a podcaster, you don't have to have a million followers to be on the network. We have small, smaller podcasts on. I'm a smaller podcast. The studio I'm in is in the basement of my house. I'm pretty sure 100 percent of us all are broadcasting out of our homes. <laughs> this isn't big production time, people. You have a platform. You have a voice. You have a show. And, and you you you're. In, in the realm of what we're doing, reach out to, to, mm-hmm. to the show that's on the network and they'll get in touch with me and we'll see if it's a fit and you might be on the Patriot Podcast Network next. Yeah, it definitely sounds good to, to me. And and on that note, let's tell everybody where they could find the Patriot Podcast Network. I know you already described it, but let's hit them with it again before we cut with you today. Yep, Patriot Podcast Network on your Roku device or compatible or Roku compatible smart TV. Most smart TVs are, are Roku compatible now. You just go to your 
Roku device. You open it up, you go to the search bar, you type in Patriot Podcast Network, you add us into your uh, uh, catalog of, of Roku apps. We're there forever. And you can watch us. Like I said, right now, there's 18 shows. As far as my show, The, the Great Divide, it's, you just go to the website, thegreatdivide1776.com. But look for the Patriot Podcast Network over my show so you could see all the shows. The Patriot Podcast Network also has a Facebook page, has an Instagram, and has a Twitter. The website's coming soon, but that the website donate, domain is ppn.live. But find P, uh, Patriot Podcast Network on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, the Roku device itself. And I, I appreciate you guys having me on, and I cannot wait to start our show together. Yeah, it's going to be uh, something that we're extremely looking forward to. And in addition to having you back, we'll be uh, doing a little collaboration in just less than two weeks here. So this is the uh, host of the Great Divide podcast and the CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network, Alan Jacoby. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care. Well, those were two great interviews. Oh, yeah. Finally, awesome. I was really excited to sit down with Ambassador Sands. You know, we called her out for a little bit on the show until our people reached back to us. But as that three-way race that she talked about has tightened severely over the course of the last month or so, uh, you know, they finally reached back to us and we were able to set it up. In addition to that, it seems like she's a great friend of Cash Patel, who's a great friend yeah. of our show. I talked to uh, our, our even better friend, Erica Knight, today, and she says he is 100% confirmed for the fourth and that she talked to uh, Amanda Milius as well. So our listening audience will probably be happy to hear that she says it still remains on her calendar at this time. That was, <laughs> that's neither a confirmation or a denial, but the yeah. fact that the interview with Cash Patel and Amanda Milius exists is something we can f- confirm a little bit harder than the Hunter Biden laptop was. <laughs> It'll be so fun. Yeah, it'll be a good time. So uh, Donald Trump was making the rounds this weekend. He was uh, out there for a packed house down in Florida. They had the America Freedom Tour going on. A lot of the audio I was able to pull was awful. It was, you know, fan submitted. But at the same time, it's still good to kind of hear what he's got going on. I got part of his uh, speech that he gave there. It's kind of like stumping on the platform. Let's hear it.
Not bad, right? Not bad at all. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty much where it started and uh, would continue on there. So it's kind of funny because, you know, those speeches he's given, like, I understand the importance of the midterm elections and the fact that we're going to be able to, like, slow down the Biden agenda once we, uh, you know, get past the midterms and, and, and win overwhelming majorities in the House and Senate. That's good. But the, the speeches that he's giving right now is... They're presidential speeches. They're stump speeches. Oh, yeah. I so, mean, since he so-called left, you know, office, it's pretty much been that way for the most part. Yeah. And, and like we've always covered, he goes out on these campaign trail to hold rallies for these America First candidates, and he brings them up on stage for like 30 seconds and tells them to get off because the people <laughs> that they want to see are him, not not them. Yeah. So... <laughs> Well, he's been right on a lot of different things that's come down in, in, in the news narrative lately, and uh, he highlighted that. Let's hear it. And you can't say that I didn't warn you. I said it was going to happen. I predicted all this stuff. I said, you're going to have seven, eight, nine down yesterday. That's happened. California just hit close to nine. Whoa. I said mm-hmm. it during the debate, loud and clear Crazy. for all to hear. And they left. They left. Oh, Trump. Oh, oh he's so funny. But now they're saying that Trump was right, and it's quickly become a slogan that's on a lot of our hats. Not my hats. People are making that Trump was right. Thank you very much for those people. Yep. Yes. But Trump was right, and they say he was right about everything. If you take a look at all these different things, you can go into a lot of subjects. Another one of Joe Biden's most appalling disasters is the nightmare he's created on our southern border. Don't yes. The fake news doesn't even report it. You never see these stories. But everyone sees what's happening to our country and that people are unable to live in peace. And if you live on the border, it's so dangerous. And this is people that have been there for 40 years and they say it's never been like this. Their their homes are being horribly raided and bad things are happening. Mm. Another good stumpy part of his speech there. Yep, I mean... Trump is always right, and he's just being proven every single day, more and more. Yeah, how horribly he was repressed as well is definitely something that's yeah. kind of sad. So that that was his Saturday. He was out there looking good and uh, sounding great, and then decided to uh, parlay that into some Sunday morning news shows. He jumped on Varney and Friends. And, uh, of course, one of the hot topics that uh, you know we're talking about today on the show and we'll talk about later on with Mr. Mr. Michael Johns is the uh, whole China narrative and how they fit into the picture of uh, geopolitics with everything that's going on right now. Let's hear Trump kind of weigh in on uh, what he thinks is up with China. You can't let this tragedy continue. You can't let these these thousands of people die. It's going to be hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of people by the time it ends. Well, let, let me turn to China. China has a deal with Russia. They'll help each other during this war. Yeah. President Biden held this two-hour phone call with Xi Jinping. We haven't got a transcript. We don't know what threats were. You're going to like this one, Antoinette. But we presume. I think I do. (laughs) Go ahead. Tell us. We were threatened by China. You know, I heard that he said, you know, he read a line that they gave to him about the repercussions. He read, they gave him a line, and he read it. 
She's very smart. Okay, I dealt with all of them. I know them all. I know them better than I know you, Stuart. And I know you, and I like you. And I congratulate you on the success of your show because people love Thank your you. show and they love you. But I know them better <laughs> than I know you. And when they read a line, he doesn't exactly get phased. He doesn't read lines. He gives lines. And I believe strongly that he made a threat actually to Biden, and that wasn't reported. So we should get a tape of the call, just like we did with my perfect call to the president of Ukraine, which is the reason I like him so much, one reason. And now he's proven to me because he stood up for me with that call. He said Trump did nothing wrong. He didn't threaten me. He didn't threaten me. He could have gone the other way, could have gone woke like guys like Bill do Barr you... do. <laughs> Got to get that Bill Barr shittage in there, too. <laughs> I know. He has to go for that little dig, but he's so good at it. True story. There's a lot of truth that comes out um, when you talk about Joe Biden's narrative that he doesn't give demands, and especially uh, when you contrast yeah. that with somebody like Xi Jinping um, in regards to receiving them. He probably uh, scoffed that one off. Like if you can, if you decide to interfere in the Russia-Ukraine situation, anything otherwise than what's going on right now, bad things are going to happen to China. And you think he was probably a fuck out of here. Yeah. You know how much money we spend on China a year? It's ridiculous. I know. So, he probably laughed in a half a trillion dollars, which is 20% of our economy. And then that's what China compensates for in the United States. If, if our listenership didn't know that, go look that one up. So that's that's something that uh, you know you definitely have to take into account and accord when when dealing with this. I, I I wish there was more of a legitimate news apparatus out there that could get elements of that Joe Biden Xi Jinping um, phone call out there. But uh, who knows if we'll ever hear any part of the transcripts. So whenever somebody needs to be asked questions about that, like just look at for instance, there's so much shit that's happened over the last couple of days that's negative affecting Biden. You know. The phone call on Friday was a disaster. Trump Trump talked about it, and, and we heard it as well from several of our trusted news sources. You roll that right into, you know, all the things that are going on with Russia and Ukraine right now and the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard this or not, Antoinette. It's breaking over the course of our show. What? It's not fake news. It's not, even though it just happened last month, Jen Psaki has tested positive for COVID again. Oh, my gosh. And isn't she, like, boosted or, like, double boosted? The twice-vaxxed and boosted (laughs) press secretary who had COVID about a month ago, right when the questions got super hard, got COVID again. Yep. I mean, I feel like so many of these people are using COVID as an excuse to avoid. You know, it's a given at this point. It's so fucking funny, though. Yeah, well, it's sad. obvious. (laughs) Um, Yeah, sad, obviously, but funny sad. No, you're you're 100% right. They got into the Iran nuclear deal, Cash Pallets 2.0, as we refer to it on this show. Mm -hmm. Um, The uh, trilateral agreement that the United States, Iran, and surprisingly, Russia are all sitting at the same table negotiating right now, even though we're fighting with Russia in a proxy war in Ukraine, which makes absolutely no sense. But that's just how much of a clown world we live in right now. That was the next topic on Varney. Let's hear uh, Trump weigh in on that one. Um. Saudi Arabia is going to get them, and everyone else is going to get them, and how can you tell so, them not to do it? So why is Biden doing it? Because he's stupid, okay? <laughs> because he's stupid, and because they're stupid, and they shouldn't be in power anyway, but they're destroying our country, and they may ultimately be responsible for destroying the world. 
Mm. It sounds like one of his stem speeches. And the world. (laughs) But that wasn't the most controversial hot take that Donald Trump had um, while he was there. Um, He talked about a word that we can't say on this show. That Joe Rogan has gotten into a little hot water for. Mm. And that... Stuart Varney's eyebrows went really high when Donald Trump referenced it on Sunday morning this week, and that is the N-word. Oh. Yeah. You want to hear him say it? Yep. He's going to say it. No way. Let's hear it. (laughs) But I listened to him constantly using the N-word. That's the N-word. And he's constantly using it, the nuclear word. Gotcha. And we never (laughs) talk about it. We say, oh, he's a nuclear power. But we're a greater nuclear power. We- he was referencing uh, Vladimir Putin, nuclear flexing. and uh, But what he said, you know, when you just Stuart Varney's Dude, face, I really when he's like, I was going to say the other N word. Yeah, I was like, there's no fucking. <laughs> would, you hear him, would you hear him saying the N word? And then his eyebrows like went all the way up. And then he said it again. He's like, mm, what are we going to do here? <laughs> the nuclear word. Oh, hilarious. It was hilarious. And you know what else is hilarious? A segment on Newsmax's John Bachman's meme team that's on every Friday exclusively on Newsmax and the John Bachman Show. And he's going to be joining us right now as his audio is getting ready to key up. We're going to jump in with him and, and talk politics and the spicy memes that help control the news cycle. All right, jump in with us next today. He is the uh, host of the John Bachman Show, which appears exclusively on Newsmax. It's kind of hard to lead our audience into anything else other than say his name, Mr. John Backman. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Hey, it's great to uh, be on with you guys. Big fan. Well, yeah, I appreciate it, sir. And we've been talking for a while online. It's good to finally mm-hmm. be able to have you come join us on the show. And, uh, you know, you support us and, and all of the other, uh, I would call them content creators in the community, to say the least. Sure, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. How's everything going with you on your end? Everything, I mean... Aside from just kind of being gobsmacked by the <laughs> rapid dissension of our country under this administration, I can't complain too much. Um, you know, uh, uh, we were talking today just about how awful the situation is in re- in Ukraine and talking about uh, Zelensky consolidating all the media under one cha- national channel. And just gosh, I mean, I make fun of and chastise the American media, but it, it's hard to imagine that we're in a day and age where having opposition press seems like a luxury yeah. that uh, few countries can afford these days. It's just, yes, I'm, a, I'm doing okay to answer your question, but still amazed at uh, you know some of the things happening. John, you've been, around in the media, the world. you've been in the media for a long time. Is it to see, wake up every morning and see how fast this news cycle is spinning uh, mm-hmm. out of control. Like it's, I've never seen it before, maybe in the last four or five years compared to the other 40 years that I've been alive on this planet how does it feel being involved in this and, and having to be able to prepare? I mean, you never got, you guys never have to look for any like, uh, you know, nice pieces. You don't have to do any like cat fashion shows or anything like that. Cause there <laughs> I is, wish, there I wish are, we were doing cat fashion shows. No, I think, I, no, I think, I think we about all do. this all the time because I have kind of come up in this, you know, I've, I've worked as a journalist for about 20 years yeah. now. And, you know, my first job ever, I worked as a reporter in Augusta, Georgia at the CBS station. And this is really before the internet. I didn't even have a cell phone. They didn't even issue me a cell phone. I mean, this is it's a small market, right? So they had cell phones. I was 2003, 2004. But I, you know, I, I carry around quarters and a pager and I had a map book where you had to like look up the streets and the grid and everything. And I used to go down to the city council office and pick up the agenda 
which become available on, on Friday afternoon, like hard copy agenda and read through the agenda for next week's commission meeting to find out what was on the agenda to, to dig up stories. And, you know, going from that where you're having to enterprise and, you know, really find stories to now where everything is just thrust upon you. It's gone from like digging for diamonds to almost trying to drink from a fire yeah. uh, hydrant. And that's the way it feels every day. And um, I do think though, that the older I get and the more I, I kind of consume news, you really learn how important it is to find sources of information that um, challenge you and that you know, make you think critically about what you're being told. You know, one of the reasons why I left the main, the quote unquote mainstream media is because what was happening in local news is you had all this corporate consolidation. You had companies telling you what to say from a thousand miles away, and it didn't really make sense with what I was hearing from the people and my sources I was talking to on the street level. And, uh, you know, I, I initially had tried to get out of television and go work in digital media. That's how I found Newsmax. And then we started the TV network because uh, the censorship and kind of the, the um, you know, the extortion money you had to pay to big tech to be yeah. a player uh, just became too onerous. And so here we are in this kind of weird position where I find myself having more freedom and flexibility on cable television than you have on the internet nowadays. It's, it's just yeah. wild. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something that keeps us on our toes. I mean, we we do a bi-weekly mm -hmm. podcast. It, it takes us an entire week worth of, uh, you know, promotion, preparation, and actually do the show, editing, and then as soon as you're done with that, it's right into the next one, and you're doing two hours a day on live television. So mm -hmm. I can only imagine how much work you have to put into uh, everything you've got going on there. No, but it's, it's so important what you guys do and what a lot of these podcasts do, and you guys come to this from a non-traditional journalist background but, you know, one of the things that's never lost on me is that journalism is really something that's practiced by all of us. You don't have to, it's not like, you know, it's not life or death, but, you know, people, you know, and I find this is true with law enforcement, especially, you know, they, they understand the difference between bullshit and reality a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. Uh, you know, some of my bet, I've always thoroughly enjoyed working with law enforcement uh, as, as a journalist. Uh, because you develop connections with people, you can really have uh, a give and take and, you know, work to make your community better. And, you know, so when I listen to you guys' podcast, I, I, you know, these guys obviously get it and ladies too. Um, <laughs> and uh, you guys, you guys have become one of the sources of information that I, you know, I don't always agree with what you guys have to say, but I do really respect your opinion uh, because it's authentic and it's not really um, skewed by this kind of giant corporate media lens that we see so much you know, even on, even on the conservative side of things, sometimes that, that happens. So um, well, yeah, I'm just I, a big fan of, of this kind of um, dis, this, uh, this disruption we see in the media business. It, it's certainly something that's been a long time coming. And we appreciate the fact that not only you said, you know, you, when you listen, that you don't always agree with the narrative that we have. Yeah. And that's something that we stress to our audience, too. If you're not going to go out and, and listen to what anyone says on any kind of show, whether it's live television or a podcast and do your own research and dig into a little bit, either the backstory or the narrative we're portraying, then all you're doing is, is basically, you know, succumbing to the same thing that you see in the legacy media where it doesn't matter if it's Fox news or CNN, they all in some way, shape or form parrot the same narrative from a different angle and mm -hmm. try to just beat it into your brain is that that's the only thing, uh, you know, going on. Like when we saw the summer of love back in, 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 in 2019, you know, they, they, the mainstream media really wanted you to feel no matter where you lived in America, whether it was the most rural place in the middle of the woods or, or in any of the major cities who weren't affected that like those riots that were going on were the only thing that was affecting the country right now. And it was like that every time you walked out mm -hmm. of the door. And I think a lot of people started waking up in that moment when they went outside and was like, 
I said he's not burning. I mean, there was places that were definitely hot zones in the United States, but they're like, I don't see. And, you know, the same thing kind of came through with COVID. It's just like they'll show you file footage of of body bags from either a different time or a place in the world that has nothing to do with COVID. And people were going outside and being like, okay, I just went to Walmart and came home and I didn't see any body bags or anybody dying. And it's one of those things where, you know, bad things definitely happen with both of those narratives. But it's what the media wants you to think is everywhere. And it's not necessarily the case anymore. This um, when I was a local news reporter, you know, a big national story would happen. Just for example, you know, something that comes to mind is the the Bernie Madoff situation. Right. When I was working down here in West Palm Beach, Florida, a big national story, and it used to be where the national news would come in and they, you know, they coordinate with local news reporters and find out what you know and who your sources are, and they kind of like you know get the story from you. But now it's a lot of times the national media kind of talking down to these local communities and telling them what to think. And they don't really care about what the actual local perspective is. It's everything is like a top-down type mentality. Yeah. And you know, most of the news is produced in Washington, D.C. or New York City or Los Angeles. And the, the worldviews that dominate those cities don't really reflect what happens in you know, what I call flyover country or middle, middle America, where right. reality actually happens. And uh, this is one of the you know, competitive advantages I feel like I have being based in Florida. You know, when I go to my daughter's basketball games on the weekend, and I talk to the parents of her teammates, you know, I feel like, you know, these people aren't wor- working in, in the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy in Washington, <laughs> D.C. They're not, you know, um, you know, hedge fund traders on Wall Street making tens of millions of dollars a year. They're just average folks. And, uh, you know, I feel like I get a better kind of, you know, assessment on what matters to them than, you know, what I hear from the dominant media sources in Washington and New York. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely something that you have to take into account. And it's one of the things that I think a lot of our both your viewership and our listenership take into consideration when they uh, tune into either one of our shows. John, I want to get a couple hot takes on you, a couple of the big issues affecting the country and more before we let you go, because we know how busy you are. I, we heard you lead in with you guys were doing a piece on Zelensky, his his uh, consolidation of power and media over the last 48 hours going on in the Ukraine. Uh, that's obviously the other side of the two sided coin that the mainstream media and all, all our friends in, in the legacy media are trying to push down our throat right now. Whereas if you don't, you know, love Ukraine, you're basically t- the same thing as an insurrectionist, which is just crazy. There's so much stuff going on. We had ambassador Carla Sands on this morning, who probably is one of the most, uh, you know, uh, experienced people in the field. And she said, you know, for as much as the stuff you feel bad for the people of Ukraine, she called it one of the most corrupt nations in the history of the planet as well. So, I mean, there's both, both things, uh, you know, affecting that this place right now. And we, we just got to kind of figure it out. What's your whole take on the, the situation that's going on on the ground there right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I go back and forth on this and, and this is one of the things that uh, you know, I don't have. Um, I don't always have kind of a set mindset. I, I, I have looked at, I, I've personally followed Zelensky's career, uh, you know, uh, since he became president, his history as a TV commentator and comedian, in Ukraine before. And, you know, I generally think the guy has the best intentions for Ukraine in mind. Um, you, you know, and I, again, the fact that he's doing this, I think time will tell. This is something that you often see from dictators. Uh, Erdogan did the same thing in Turkey. Yep. Uh, Vladimir Putin's done the same thing. But what happens after this? What happens after this war is over? Does Zelensky open the media back up? I mean, that's going to be a true test of what happens. I think, you know, if a lot of this kind of gets boiled down and this is the nature of our media too. Everything has to be kind of polarized into good guy, bad guy, this or that. There's very rarely kind of a third option. And I think it's true. You can certainly see there's plenty of reporting on this. Um, There is a history of corruption inside Ukraine. Now that said, 
the Ukrainian parliament uh, in 2020 did pass a pretty significant anti-corruption bill. Um, they're working on this. These things do take time. For me, it ultimately comes down with, you know, who are you going to side with? The guy who's staying in his country, you know, defending his nation or the guy who's bombing innocent women and children. And, you know, nobody's perfect here. I don't believe in, you know, ideological purity, but I'm definitely more team Zelensky than team Putin at this point. Um, and and I, I do think one of the um, downsides of this is, is we la- we're kind of losing the ability to think critically about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you referenced that in your question. You know, Vladimir Putin has made his demands pretty clear. He doesn't want Ukraine to be part of NATO. He wants um, some recognition of what's happened in Crimea and the Donbass region. Those are things actually that Zelensky has um, hinted that he's in favor of discussing, at least at this point. It seems like there might be a path forward to diplomacy. But the real obstacle for that is Vladimir Putin and his insistence on continuing to escalate this. And I think you've got to put more of the responsibility on him than anyone else for what actually is happening. Now, we should always be skeptical. And sometimes I struggle with that thin line between skepticism and cynicism. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I, I think the, the question is more about um, how do we have this conversation and how do we think critically about it? Because we do have this track record in this country of not winning any wars recently and seeing, um, you know, you think about Benghazi and how that was basically just a gun running operation. We were sending weapons to Libya, having local militias then transport those weapons to Syria, to militias we thought were, we were friendly with, but turned out we weren't so friendly with them after all. And, you know, we don't know everything about these militias inside Ukraine. There's the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military, and then there's other um, militia organizations as well. And so we're like in this kind of fog of war period. Um, and I, I, I'm trying not to um, just come up with a hot take on this. Is Zelensky bad? Is Zelensky good? Is Ukraine corrupt? Is it not corrupt? Um, you know, I think there are certainly questions that we can ask about that. But right now, I'm, I'm just more focused on the destruction that's taking place in Ukraine. And I, and I really rely heavily on, you know, we have reporters on the ground there who are yeah. talking to sources. Sarah Williamson is there. And there's no better, you know, that's where I really feel like, um, you know, I'm really proud of Newsmax as an organization that we've sent um, a couple of reporters there. Uh, we had Chuck Holton there as well. We have another reporter with Sarah now. And they're, they're getting, they're gathering information on the ground. They're doing real boot leather reporting. And that's, you know, that's the information that I tend to rely on most heavily. Uh, the sources like Sarah who, who, you know, work with Newsmax and that's doing, you know, doing the actual original reporting there on the ground. So, you know, get just to summarize all this, you have to be skeptical and you have to be a little cynical about where the information is coming from. I'm sure you guys have seen a lot of the reports about Russian troop destruction. Yeah. The Ukrainian foreign ministry says this has happened. What is really happening? We don't know. You know, we don't really know the real story. Yeah. Um, so I'm just trying to do the best job I can of providing, you know, providing the information to, to my audience that I sure. know to be accurate. Yeah. And it's good to see you guys have boots on the ground there. And it gives you guys just an, an added perspective of things coming in because I mean, people are going to spin it to whatever they want. If, if, if people inside the beltway want more money appropriated for something, or, you know, they want to, to demonize someone, they're going to have uh, all the people that they can have influence over in, in the legacy media kind of help them shape that narrative. But you guys are doing a great job of just kind of playing it down the middle. I think when you ask, you know, uh, proposed all the questions is Zelensky good is he bad is it corrupted I mean the answers to all of those are probably yes but it's like at what levels and how much are they really affecting right. everything that's going on in the in, in the actual moment right now and that's probably the most important part right and you know we don't get to pick and this is an important thing that I think you know especially with the neocon contingency like we don't get to pick the leaders of foreign countries right. I, we should you know that's one of the kind of fundamental things 
um, that I think is lost on people like Lindsey Graham yeah. and others. Uh, you know, it's like we get in, we we have a, a long track record of trying to install governments that we like, only to have it backfire and cause us problems. Uh, you know, Iran comes to mind and that, yeah. and that type of situation. And, you know, this is why so many of us who are conservatives have kind of gravitated towards back to this, um, of, you know, aversion to military adventurism overseas because we don't have a track record of success in our lifetimes to see the advantages of doing it. And, you know, what you were talking about before, we're sending like $14 billion to Ukraine in this latest age package. Uh, we're $30 trillion in debt as yeah. a country. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for anyone to ask, hey, wait. Okay, we we're seeing women and children killed. We want to support the Ukrainian people. Here's fourteen billion dollars. But what about our southern border? What about you know what about the things that we need to address in this country? Um, where you know that stuff does never it never is is prioritized uh, by Congress. And you know I, I think the American people are wise to that. They they are, are you know they've seen especially like we were talking about before people in flyover countries. This is where most of our military comes from. And uh, these communities that that uh, continually uh, provide young men and women to our military, to our armed services, they don't want to see another endless war right. being fought. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think I think that's there's a lot of that in this skepticism with Zelensky. The American public knows that our Pentagon and our elected officials in Washington have not done a good job of uh, managing these wars over the last 20 or so years. And so the skepticism, I think, is healthy for a lot of people on what are we doing? What is this going to lead to? What happens next if we do do a no-fly zone? So, yeah, I think this is a healthy, a healthy debate we're having as a country. It sure is. And and remember, when you say we we as a as a nation, the United States don't get to pick leaders of foreign country. Do not let Hillary Clinton hear that. <laughs> she will come looking <laughs> yeah. for you. Well, so. I, I mean, that's that's another great example of like why you know a bad actor who 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 has reformed himself. I mean, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya was a terrible dude. But he had given up his nuclear weapons. He had basically become kind of an ally, not someone you'd want to pick as a president of a country, but for a shithole country like Libya, right. he was managing the situation. But no, Hillary Clinton has to come in and Muammar Gaddafi gets killed. Why would any you know world leader give up their nuclear weapons? Now, that's their only protection they really have from being offed by, you know. Someone like Hillary Clinton. Yeah, we we they've given the blueprint for what happens if you do for sure. John, you gave a perfect segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you on uh, domestic issues. Although the economy and inflation, gas prices are de- definitely things that are affecting all the blue collar men and women in the United States. I think the the biggest problem that's been either underlying when things like Russia and Ukraine are happening, or right at the forefront when we had that big disaster down to Del Rio, Texas, uh, late last year happened was what's going on on the southern border. Um, I know you guys have put a lot of coverage into this, everything from people going down there and giving, you know, on the spot reporting all the way up through really good commentary. And we've never seen anything like this before. You know, the border has always no. been an issue. There aren't 33 million illegal uh, people present in the United States just because of Joe Biden. You know, there's probably an extra three or four million because of him. But, you know, it's, a, it's always been a problem that's present. The in- immigration system is obviously broken. And, you know, conservative and Republicans answers for this every time it seems like they get back into power is uh, we'll give amnesty to who's already here and then we'll make sure we lock it down again. Mm-hmm. Now, we've never seen anything like this, but some of the things that are coming across right now when you talk about MS-13, not the best and brightest from everybody else's country, a ton of economic migrants, which puts even more of a, you know, uh, hurtful issue on the the working middle class when it comes to, you know, all the places that they're going to work in, like the fields and and manufacturing and uh, let's just say like the poultry industry and, and things like that. 
what do you what what's the end game for this that you see? Like obviously this administration is not going to do anything to kind of slow down the the track, regardless of what they say they're not going to. But you know, as someone that covers this on a regular basis, what's your experience been like just kind of seeing this? Do you guys are you guys familiar with the uh, with Hanlon's razor? A lot of people know Occam's razor, but uh, are you guys familiar with Hanlon's razor? Why don't you let our listenership know what it is? kind of logistical mechanism where you say never subscribe to malice what can be attributed to incompetence so mm. you know if something's happening it's usually not some conspiracy theory it's because somebody just doesn't know what they're doing and this situation on the southern border really challenges Hanlon's razor for me it's something i rely on a lot of times when you don't know the real answer and you got to kind of pick which which way should i come down on this issue well, most of the time it's not malice, it's usually just incompetence. But on this issue, I really have, you know, I wonder, just like the Iran nuclear deal, what is the administration's strategy long-term here? Because politically, it's a loser for them. I mean, you see this down in Del Rio, Texas, in with the with the 2020 um, elections and those congressional seats that flipped yep. when Democrats thought they were safe seats for them, they went Republican. Uh, you know, legal immigrants, when I talk to legal immigrants, they are some of the people most offended by what's happening with this Biden administration on the southern border. I mean, we can talk about the opioid epidemic as a parent. You know, when you you hear about these kids down in uh, the Army students, I think they were from the football team. Yeah, they were down there and, you know, got some cocaine that was laced with fentanyl. I mean, this is pouring across our borders. And, you know, I think uh, Jason Jones, who is our reporter down there um, embedded with the Texas Department of Public Safety, I think he's up to like 111 different countries now or something like that of people that have been apprehended coming across the border. So it's not just Mexicans or the Golden Triangle um, that Kamala Harris likes to talk about. I mean, these are people from Africa, the Middle East, Asia, all over the world, just walking across our southern border. And, uh, you know, I'm somebody who has radically changed my position on this issue. I used to think, okay, you know, they're here already. We're not going to have mass deportations. That's not going to happen. Um, but there is no, I don't think there's any other way around this now. And are we up to 34 million? Is that the number we're using now? I think I remember not too long ago, we were using 22 million before that it was 11 million people here illegally. And, you know, who knows what the number is actually, right? I mean, that's most important possibly. No. And what, what is astounding to me is that these, these policies, these border policies only incentivize the worst type of behavior. It only, um, affects, you know, the most vulnerable people and the, you know, the, the, the children who are being trafficked, they're the ones who are hurt the most by these open border policies. And I just don't understand why or how this can continue. We've almost become like, you know, sent blind to the, this whole thing because it's just in your face every day um, of, you know, tens of thousands of people just walking across the border and nothing stopping. It. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's something that's extremely scary, and, and I think the more people that it affects, that might be bringing them back into a, you know, it was a huge national issue in 2016 and definitely one of the top two things that I think got Donald Trump elected originally. It was it was going to be that and his foreign policy stance on, on what he was going to do with China and bringing jobs back, but it's definitely something that needs to be brought back to the forefront. We see a lot of the America First candidates we have on this show, especially ones that were former Trump administration officials using it as one of the top pieces of their campaign platform. John, last thing I want to touch with you on, probably the most important for, for most of our listenership, even though we definitely love the news portions of the, the show you have, it's, it's a recurring segment called the Meme Team. You, you yeah. are definitely a fan of, of memes, and if I didn't bring it up today, grand old memes, that Southern dude, mostly peaceful memes, and everybody in the Patriotic Meme Alliance were going to give me crap about it. So 
What made you want to make this a part as we, we know that you, sometimes you're busy and the news overtakes memes, even though memes sometimes shape the news cycle and that you can't always fit it into your show, but you've made it so much of a reoccurring segment and uh, those guys are super appreciative. What did your producers and stuff think that that was a great idea when you wanted to bring that on? And uh, how much do you, <laughs> no. do you love getting to cover <laughs> I, it? My producers thought I was crazy. And because a lot of my producers are females and you know, there are female memers, but really I, I think, I think it's mostly peaceful memes who has the meme about being a memer yes. with the acronym for it. And I've always been a huge fan of political cartoons. And I've, I've actually studied propaganda, uh, how it's been used you know, during World War II, Uncle Sam Wants You, that type of stuff. Yeah. It is some of the most powerful political messaging that there is. And when I started, um, there's, a, there's a, a memer named Ebeth. I'm sure you probably know her. Yep. Um, she reached out to me on Twitter and she started introducing me to Midnight Mitch and that Southern dude and Mostly Peaceful Memes. And I, too many people to mention, I'm, I'm, I'm regretfully going to not be able to name them all here, um, but their content is so powerful and they have been so open to me using it for free. I can, we, you know, we're still kind of a startup network. I can't afford to pay them. I wish I could, Sure. but just, they are so happy just to be given credit for the work. Because one of the things that I found as a journalist was a little unsavory about the meme category is how frequently people just take memes and don't give credit to the original creator exactly. of the meme. And so that, that was really the intention of Meme Team was to give credit on, on my television show, my, my platform, um, give memers credit because I think they're doing God's work, um, <laughs> making people think, you know, laugh about these very horrible stories. Sometimes, you know, you have got to take a step back and kind of appreciate the absurdity of, of politics sometimes and going, you know, Going back to political cartoons during the Revolutionary War, this stuff is part of, of American culture. It's so important. Um, dissent, um, comedy, parody, what's happening with the Babylon Bee now breaks my heart. Like this stuff is so yes. important to our political discourse today. Uh, the shit posting, if you want to call it that. <laughs> That's what we I call mean, it. <laughs> there has to be there has to be some kind of room for us to make fun of what it is. It is so serious. It is so, you know, life or death so many times. But at the same time, we're all just human. We all put our leg, our pants on one leg at a time. And why can't we just joke about it? When I was a little, my dad loves to tell this story. When I was a little kid, we were driving around in his car, listening to the radio. And it was Ollie North testifying during the Iran-Contra affair. And I just looked over to my dad and, and I said, dad, do you have to be a liar to be a politician? <laughs> and, he, you know, I, he just kind of laughed. And, and it's like, we should always, Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever, we should always hold these folks accountable. And the best way I think to do that is with a little hint of humor sometimes um, because, you know, like I, I love America more than anything and yeah. just a little, you know, ribbing, a little fun. I mean, you know, I lived in a fraternity house for a few years. It's like, it's that type of environment where you're kind of talking shit about your friends, but trying to hold them accountable at the same time by doing it. And that's kind of this very unique thing we see, see in the meme world. And I'm just kind of like a, a passenger or a spectator to the whole thing. And but everyone has embraced me in this way. I, I never mm -hmm. thought I'd be embraced. And, um, and I, I love the segment every Friday on the show. It's like, and all of the, and now everyone's kind of come around and the producers who thought it was kind of fun, you know, kind of weird before, like they're all secretly admit that they they anticipate the segment every Friday. So it's a lot of pressure now. I feel like I'm a lot of pressure, but fortunately everyone, all the memers you mentioned, everybody else, they provide so much content every week. It kind of makes it easy on me. Yeah, those group <laughs> chats that I'm in with those guys are some of the most relaxing parts of my day because you know for all the stuff that we have to do and uh in our real lives and and doing the podcast probably like you with your show and then all the stuff you have to yeah. do outside of work it just kind of yeah, yeah, sit down and yeah, enjoy well, them too huh? that's been one of my favorite things about this is 
you know, reaching out to people and like having these direct messages and finding out like what their perspective is. Oh, this memer is actually in law enforcement. Oh, this this memer is actually a combat veteran, and uh, that's why that you know they take their the stance on stuff. And that really for me has like brought this to the next level. Like I, even though I've never met these people and I don't even know who they are in real life, I feel like I've I've made some lifelong friends. Yeah, one hundred percent. And some of them have been guest hosts with us on the show, and it's been some for. I, I would say some of our top enjoyable moments in regards to uh, reporting the news when you get to hear them actually commentate with their with their words, what they do in memes. It's like there's not much of a disconnect there. They they are genuine in so what they true. do. John, this has been awesome having yeah. you jump in with us today. Of course, we know you're so busy. We're gonna we're gonna let you go. We'd like to, of course, and be able to invite you back in the future. And we're gonna keep supporting you. I don't know if you want to give out any of your social medias, but of course, where they could definitely watch the John Backman show. Yes, you can catch me on Newsmax every day with my co-host, Bianca De La Garza, where you host every day from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, find and check your local listing. We're on Comcast, DirecTV, Dish Network, Verizon, all the major players. Also, Newsmax is the only major cable network available completely for free. You do not need a paywall. You can download the app on the App Store or the Android Store. Watch us while you can before these big corporate media overlords make us skip behind a paywall. So uh, again, you don't need a cable subscription to watch Newsmax totally for free anywhere in the world as long as you have an internet connection. Awesome. And uh, like I said, we'll be looking to have you come back with us at some point in the future. This is the host of the John Backman Show. Mr. John Backman, thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. No problem. And like I told you before, if we're having steak for breakfast, make sure it's country fried steak with gravy. Boom. (laughs) Well, John Backman was fucking awesome. Yeah, he's great. Real dude. He gets it. Um, You know, you're not going to hear, you're going to get his feelings on things, but he's not going to be too opinionated because of, you know, the way the news cycle works. And even though Newsmax is probably not uh, in any way, shape or form part of the legacy media, they have to hear both sides of the coin. So if you have like someone who's got a regular show on there, who's saying he's totally against one side of the narrative, it's kind of hard to shape the other sides when he tries to bring guests on his show. Yeah, he has to stay neutral, you know, it's just, I mean, like you said, he's not legacy, they're not legacy media, but they still have to, you know, kind of stay sort of in the middle, they can have their own opinion, but I mean, it's, it's like, you know, we're different on our show, we can say whatever the hell we want, (laughs) basically. Yeah, because people who, who, yeah, I mean, not like we're an echo chamber, like anyone who wants to come on Steak for Breakfast is welcome, but, you know, if you don't agree with our narrative, then there's a lot of other places you can get your news sources. Exactly. So I, I think we kind of straight shoot it as far as like, okay, it is opinionated, but it's truth. I mean, it's it's yeah. literally there. We usually bring most of our news narrative unless we're painting like a historical backdrop uh, of a you know a, a news narrative that we're trying to build with supporting audio. So it's like this. This is all right. Here's our opinion on it, and then here's what's actually happening. Here's senators and and Congress people and presidents and it's secretaries of whatever talking about it. So. Well, we do got a little bit of a hodgepodge for our last news segment. There's some stuff going on. Russia-Ukraine conflict, whatever you want to call it, continues to happen. We're also going to touch a little bit on the uh, whatever's going on with the Biden administration. We got some hot takes from him and, and Vice President Harris. And then, you know, SCOTUS hearings started uh, yesterday. They had some introductory hearings and then um, they, they kind of deep-dived into some of the issues that are that are wrong with the Supreme Court nominee today and uh we're gonna get into all that but let's let's stay on the russian narrative right now i saw over the weekend noah's favorite paid op creeper pedo pundit bill maher uh was talking along the lines of the russia and uh ukraine issue and uh brought up the fact like we've talked about on here why didn't any of this shit happen when donald trump was in office let's hear him 
Putin yeah. invade Ukraine when his boyfriend Trump was in office. I mean, <laughs> Trump stood with him at Helsinki and defended him over our own intelligence agencies. So I was just asking the question, and maybe you do have an answer. Yep. Why not when Trump was in office? It would seem to be the more logical place. No, he didn't invade because he didn't need to. Because you only roll out the tanks when you think you're out of options. And Putin had a grand asymmetric strategy to dismantle NATO from within. And it was working. When the commander in chief of the United States Armed Forces calls NATO obsolete, you are on the road to a fifth column victory. And that's what he was doing. And as a matter of fact, we know now in 2018. Thank you. Well, we know this. In 2018, Trump wanted to pull out of NATO. Yep. And it was John yeah. Kelly and John Bolton who had to hold him down like a rabid dog to stop him from doing that. And if Trump had won a second term, he would have done it. But Biden being elected caused no, Putin's plan to go up in smoke. We don't know what he would have done. We don't know why he did what he did. said what? One of the things that Trump always said, though, was that he wanted... Europe to be more in charge of its own defenses and and nobody has done more to advance that cause than Vladimir Putin by doing this invasion because yeah. now you have when yeah. a country like Sweden or a country like Switzerland has said hey we're going to send weapons to Ukraine right. or a country like Germany has said we're going to increase our defense spending to a significant portion of our GDP you've messed up as Vladimir yeah. Putin strategically that you have I, provoked them to do the I, opposite I, of what you this wanted. This is what's so uh, surprising to me about Putin we always knew he was evil but nobody ever called him dumb. And now he looks dumb. He looks yes. dumb and not powerful. Yes. I mean, I... You know, I, I honestly, I was wrong. I thought he was not going to invade. I thought it was this brinksmanship. But now, like, this could really go so bad for him. I mean, the Russians have had a revolution before. Oh, yeah. And when yeah. you have the morale of the, the, the army, we know, is where it is. When you have the economy tanking. Mm, that's enough of that one. Come on. I mean, wasn't there, didn't he have like a rally with like over 200,000 people? I don't know if I call it a rally because, you know, but 200,000 people or more were there. Three quarters of a million. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, that was the, the rally we were talking. Remember everybody was talking about him having Parkinson's and that wasn't even really him. And then Friday, I told you while the show was going on, he went out to like, I believe it's the Olympic Stadium there in Moscow. And, and there was like literally a wrestling ring. In the yeah. That's what it looked like. And he had on his big puffy jacket and he gave like a 90 minute stump speech. A Russian revolution. Please. I, listen, we're not fans of Vladimir Putin. But the fact of the matter is, is there are a lot of sides to both parties involved of this story that need to be unpackaged. And, and really broken down. And then you could form your own yeah. opinions on it. I mean, we're just reporting. Listen, I'm still waiting to report the first major uh, war conflict interaction of this now, like, almost month-long, whatever you want to call it, because it just hasn't happened. Yeah, and, you know, I, I know everybody has their opinion, but I, to be honest, my opinion, I like Putin. I think he's a strong leader. He's not a saint. By any means. Stone Cold Killer. Yeah, but, I mean, look at his background. You know, the guy has made Russia great again in a lot of ways compared to what it was, and you have to respect him for that. Yeah, he did uh, bring him back to the forefront after the uh, fallout from the Cold War. That's number one. Number two, you have to look at, like, where they're coming from. Like, okay, is Vladimir Putin, could you say the exactly what you just said, Antoinette, in the same context if he was 
teleported to the United States and injected himself into American politics? Absolutely not. No. We I don't mean, have former CIA people who were, you know, killing people within their own country and, and disrupt, well, I guess we do. <laughs> okay, bad way to look at it. But yeah, you know what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yeah, but, you know, here's the thing. Like, it, it took someone Joe, can't like, we love you? <laughs> I know. It took someone like Putin to to make Russia great again. Yeah. You know, and... Yeah, look uh, at the disasters that their presidents were before him. Who was that one fucking drunk guy who was always, like, passing out on television? Oh, my God, yeah. What, what's his name? Fuck. Boris? Was it a Boris? I can't remember, but, yeah, he looked like a big old teddy bear, and uh, he was really bad at the end. And the, commun- it, the communist, you know country that he inherited yep was so evil and imagine all the corruption like he literally drained and i'm I'm sure there's still obviously corruption there sure drained the russian swamp brought god and christianity back to the country truth yeah and many good things i mean a lot of the things that trump was is trying to do like not i mean i know people hate to compare the two but the good parts of both of them, you know what I mean? Well, hey, I, I think the end-all argument is if, if Russia and Vladimir Putin were really that bad, were one-fourth of the world's oil being bought by them just three and a half weeks ago? Exactly. Okay, so if they were so awful, then why would you have been buying yeah. the oil in the first place? Well, why are they lifting sanctions on Russia to buy the oil? Yeah, and why are we allowing Russia to form uh, legitimate business deals with some of our allies and some of our enemies as part of the agreement for the Iran Palace of Cash 2.0 deal? Exactly. So, I mean, like I said, we're not fans of either party or of either country. They're both horrible, corrupt places, and and they will be for any time moving forward. But you have to know that there's both sides to this narrative. And what we're hearing right now in in, from the Beltway is a lot of the establishment, um, military industrial complex, neocon, neolib, war machine. That the only time that our government can function normally is when we're involved in some major skirmish somewhere across the globe. However, based off of our recent track record of Iran and Libya and Afghanistan and all the shit that's happened there. Combined with the fact that you're now dealing with the first or second largest nuclear power um, on the planet. And if things get really bad or bleak, well, if I'm going, everybody else is going with them. It's probably not the skirmish that you want to be involved in. Yep. So I think we should honestly stick to bombing orphan orphanages in uh, North Africa. We get a lot more good press <laughs> stateside for that one. <laughs> Vladimir Zelensky, who uh, the Ukrainian president, former um, actress. <laughs> had been doing the cycle. He did Canada Thursday, the United States Friday, virtue signaling all the way. This is your Pearl Harbor. This is your 9-11 that we're having in Ukraine. He took it to Israel over the weekend and, and compared what's going on in Ukraine right now to the, literally the Holocaust. And uh, I saw CNN kind of, uh, you know, weigh in because I guess Zelensky's starting to signal now that – so. It's, Here's the thing. If Ukraine's going to be independent, they want to be legitimate, okay? And yeah. that means no NATO, no EU – Crimea's gone, Donbass is independent, but they still want to remain a legitimate country for one reason, one reason only. That's where all the money gets siphoned into, and that's how those people like to live over there, Um, you know, as being the first or second most corrupt nation in the world. So now he's taking a stage or or, or a theme from our government and saying that the only way to end the skirmish is for a, like, high-level, fully-covered, one-on-one delegation of him and Vladimir Putin face-to-face negotiating the terms of the end of this conflict, which is also something I don't necessarily see happening Mm-mm. because uh, it shows Vladimir Putin is weak. Um, but let's hear CNN kind of give a little take on it from what I saw from Sunday talk shows. 
President Biden has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Um, and yet, you have called for negotiations with him. Will it be hard? Will it be a painful for you to have to sit down with Putin were he to agree uh, and uh, negotiate with him? I am ready for negotiations with him. I was ready uh, um, over the last two years. And I think that I think that without negotiations we cannot end this war. I think that all the people uh, who, uh, uh, who think that this dialogue is, uh, is shallow and that it is not going to resolve anything, they just don't understand that this is very valuable. If there is just one percent chance for us to stop this war, I think that we, we need to take this chance, we need to do that. I, I can tell you about the result of, of these negotiations. Uh, uh, in any case, uh, we are we are losing people on a daily basis, innocent people mm. on the ground. Uh, Russian forces have come to exterminate us, to kill us. And we give There's that narrative. The dignity of our people and our army that uh, we are uh, we are able to deal a, a powerful blow. We are able to strike back. But unfortunately, our dignity is not going to preserve the lives. So I think that we have to use any format, any chance uh, in order to have a possibility of negotiating, possibility of talking to Putin. But if these attempts fail, that would mean that, that this is a third world war. Also false. Yeah. I don't believe a word this guy says. He's being he's being forced. If not, he's a part of the bullshit narrative, clearly. I mean, we know that we know that Putin's not trying to exterminate the Ukrainian people. The majority of people I mean, at least half, I would say. Oh, that's something that would be covered extensively if... Uh... Yeah, come on. And you know what? There, uh, There's actual proof out there now proving that the Ukrainians are shooting and killing their own people to pin it on Russia. So, I mean, like you said, fog of war and whatnot, but I really think when the, whenever the media is trying to demonize someone so much, it always leads me to believe the opposite. Sure. I mean, and, yeah. or at least enough to di deep dive into... You know the information war that you're going through and, and try to get to the bottom of like okay because because the way i see it is at some point there are going to be negotiations to end this it's going to end with ukraine succumbing to every single thing putin wanted before they invaded if not more and vladimir putin's going to say i will cap off the highest level of my military intelligence who i feel you deserve to sit from the opposite side of the table of and whoever you want to send to match them is what you'll accept yeah and and you know what I, all i think all i think at this moment right now what i'm seeing is they're just trying to prolong it yep. because they could have they could have come to an agreement a long time ago but it is Zelensky, you know and his handlers are just trying to you know extend you know, it for as long as possible in my opinion we've talked to what a couple of veterans who have served over there i don't know if you remember Antoinette, but doug mastriano served um and while he was there, he did some time in and around Ukraine. Said he made a lot of friends with the people there, that they were very nice. 
and yeah. uh, worked with some of the military counterparts. He said, listen, they were like training wheel status. But I also talked to somebody else who's coming on the show. He's, he's running for a house seat in North Carolina. I don't want to kind of give too much away. He yeah. served on the Polish side of Ukrainian's border um, back in like 2015, right after Crimea was done. Okay. He said there are up to 20,000 Abrams tanks and armored personnel carriers and military equipment that the United States gave to the Ukraine for their defense in 2015. And they still, because of the Ukraine government, not have been transferred over there. Um, and, and now he said it was sounding like a lot of that stuff's going to be transferred over once like this whole thing is over. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think the, the Ukrainians would be able to probably put up a little bit more of a fight if they were using Abrams tanks and, and armored personnel carriers. Um, but, uh, yeah. I don't know what, I mean, you're talking about almost an eight year gap and from delivery to still not in theater yet. Right. So the CIA came out yesterday, uh, spokesman for them talked about, uh, believe it or not, Russian interference in the United States, uh, critical infrastructure systems. Let's hear her try to spin the newest part of this narrative. Urging private sector partners to take immediate action to shore up their defenses against potential cyber attacks. We've previously warned about the potential for Russia to conduct cyber attacks against the United States, including as a, re as a response to the unprecedented economic costs that the U.S. and allies and partners impose in response to Russia's further invasion of Ukraine. Today, we are reiterating those warnings, and we're doing so based on evolving threat intelligence that the Russian government is exploring options for potential cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in the United States. Gosh. Urging right? private... You know, it's one of those things they're where... They're, they're telling us before it happens. Yeah. And it's not Russia that's going to cyber attack us, that's for sure. No, and we've all seen that before in regards to the narrative uh, surrounding the 2020 presidential election. So mm -hmm. we knew a lot of that stuff came from, like, inside, but... Oh, yeah. Well... Let's segue a little bit. We did have the uh, opening of the Supreme Court hearings for Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. Pedo. Supporter. Pedophilia. Supporter. Lover of all things pedophilia. Probably one herself. Oh, God, I don't want to hear that. Disgusting. Yeah, I know. I was reading um, Senator Holly's thread, and I was just appalled. Oh, we're going to get into that a little bit, but, uh, you know, th this is just ugly. This is something that I hope our Republican uh, friends in the Beltway have a big enough spine for. They better, um, uh, honestly, because this is just absurd. Well, you know what else is absurd? When uh, public masturbation artist Jeffrey Tubin weighs in on the whole narrative trying to push back on her being supportive of pedophiles. Let's hear it. Just add, can well, I just add one point about these, these, these kitty porn cases? And, and this, this came up, I remember, when I was an assistant U.S. attorney back hmm. in the 90s, is that when those, uh, when those uh, sentencing guidelines were written for those cases, th this was a time when uh, the people who committed these crimes would order individual photos and, 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 get, and then get them usually through email, um, and then uh, they would be sentenced based on the number of photos they possessed. This was all pre-internet. So uh, once the internet came in and, and people got 
um, access to hundreds and then thousands of photos, they would the, the sentencing guidelines would reflect hundreds and then thousands of photos. Federal judges have been struggling with the issue of how do you create a fair system that was designed pre-internet that was, yet you have to sentence people post-internet. And what I thought Chairman Durbin pointed out is that judges across the country, including Republican-appointed judges, have been saying, look, we can't apply the rules um, pre that, that were designed pre-internet for an internet society, and many judges uh, have been giving somewhat less sentences as a result. And I thought that was a very clear explanation of why Judge Jackson uh, Im imposed sentences that were all prison sentences. It wasn't like she was letting these people go, but they were somewhat less than the guidelines because the guidelines had not been adapted for the internet era. That's just an awful how fucking... About, yeah, <laughs> how about you go F yourself? Yeah. And shut the fuck up. Seriously. You know what? One photo is enough. I'm sorry. One photo is enough. Like, what it, What kind of explanation is this? You know, like, the, the sentences that she gave those people were ridiculous. They're embarrassing. 100% embarrassing. It, it's evil. Imagine being the victim in, or the parents of the victims. It, it's disgusting, for one. And, and two, it's like... How could she even, I just don't even get how she can just, how she is even a judge for one and how she's gone this long without anybody like finding out and like realizing, I mean, I guess great we know now, but still imagine how many more are like her out there. Yeah. That are just giving lenient sentences out to these people. They're literally normalizing pedophilia yeah. every day more and more. And then you have a judge that actually lets them off. It's so bizarre. Oh, it's, it's, I think it's way past bizarre. It's, it's just downright oh, yeah, no, it's disgusting. Just disgusting and evil. It makes me so upset because, I mean, even if I wasn't a parent, you know, but, man. Yeah. Wow. Well, Lindsey Graham kind of got the party started yesterday. We're going to play a clip from him, which was kind of like meet and greet day up on Capitol Hill. Uh, the actual hearing started today, and we're going to get to some of that in a bit, but... Uh, Lindsay kind of laid it out there of, of what is going on and what he'd like to see. Let's hear him uh, talk about what he wants to hear from Senator Hawley. Go back to our offices during Kavanaugh without getting spit on. Hope that doesn't happen to y'all. I don't think it will. Uh, as to the historic nature of your appointment, I understand. But when I get lectured about this from my Democratic colleagues, I remember Janice Rogers Brown, African-American woman, that was yep. filibustered by the same people praising you. I remember, remember Miguel Estrada, one of the finest people I ever met, completely wiped out. Didn't make it through the uh, uh, gang of uh, 14, whatever gang I was in. I've been in so many, I can't remember. No. He, he didn't make the cut. Well-lived life just completely ruined. So if you're a Hispanic or African-American conservative, it's about your philosophy. Now it's going to be about the historic nature of the pick. Historic color of the pick is more like it. Yep. That's what they're the making it like. The here is when it is about philosophy, when it's somebody of color on our side, it's about we're all racist if we ask hard questions. It's not going to fly with us. We're used to it by now, at least I am. So it's not going to matter a bit to any of us. We're going to ask you what we think you need to be asked. And Senator Hawley, you need to ask her about her record as a uh, 
district court judge. You should. I hope you do. And we'll see what she says. Very fair game. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we're no we're no fans of Lindsey Graham, but it's kind of good to hear him at yeah. least. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, for sure. But you know, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, man, like what they did to Kavanaugh, and if it was conservatives, you know. It, it would be a shit show worse than Kavanaugh. Yeah, well, well we're going to do the best job we can of getting that narrative out there. Things got spicy today. Got a couple of clips from it. I mean, he talked about Senator Hawley's lead in and he took to the stage and, and highlighted several of the cases uh, where where Brown Jackson was lenient on pedophiles and giving them sentences that were below even like the minimum yeah. jail time for federal guidelines. Let's hear him kind of start to unbox this for our listenership. Hope in the next couple of days, some of the cases from your time on the on the court the district court the federal district court that i hope that we can talk about let me just run few, through a few of them so you know exactly which ones i mean united states versus hawkins this was a child pornography case where the defendant distributed multiple images of child porn possessed dozens more including videos the federal sentencing guidelines recommended a sentence of 97 to 121 months in prison prosecutors recommended 24 months in prison Judge Jackson gave the defendant three months in prison. Oh. Mm. United States versus Chazen. There it's the, that case, the defendant possessed 48 files of child pornography. The federal guidelines recommended 78 to 97 months in prison. The prosecutor recommended the same. Judge Jackson sentenced him to 28 months. United States versus Cooper. There the defendant possessed dozens of images of child pornography and uh, distributed, I should say, distributed dozens of images of child pornography, possessed over 600. The federal guidelines recommended 151 to 188 months in prison. That's a long time. The mm -hmm. prosecutor recommended 72 months. Judge Jackson gave the defendant 60 months, which was the lowest sentence permitted by the law. So I, I think you guys can kind of get an idea where that was going, and it would go on for several more minutes. I think he pointed out, like, anywhere between seven and nine distinct cases where this was the... Yeah. This was the end result on behalf of her bench. I, I don't understand, though. I don't care what side of the aisle you are on, how how this does not like make you concerned about this judge, for example. Why is she giving the bare minimum or lower than what what, what even the prosecutor recommended? Who is she? Like, it's clear that she is rooting for the pedophiles. Like, why? Like, it, it's so crazy to me. It's just so crazy. Yeah. Like you don't have to be liberal, Repub I mean, a Republican to be upset about this. Anyone should be upset by this, even on the left. You know, it's disgusting. Oh, it sure is. And, I, and it definitely paints like a scary picture of all the, you know, things we've got going on right now because it, it's just. It almost seems like they need her on there. Someone like her for, for whatever that, you know, may be coming down the pipeline down the road. You never know. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of other issues that they were going to touch on besides that, even though I think that's probably, you know, the, the most important one that that's being highlighted right now is her, is her record with lenience for pedophiles. That's a deal breaker in its own, you know? Sure. And, and, you know, it, it's one of those things in a hundred percent of the case that she was presented with in regards to these child pornography stuff, the sentences were 100% of the times reduced all the way below the federal minimums. I know, which is insane. Insane. Yeah, I, I just, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of eye-opening. But we, we are going to paint a couple different 
other narratives that she's kind of running with right now and things that she's getting grilled with up on Capitol Hill. Uh, the next one is going to be her talking to, um, I believe it's Senator Lee. Oh, okay, here we go. She was talking to Senator John Corrin on why she referred to Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush as war criminals at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not too far out of the realms of possibility. Uh, but again, it's one of those things that as a federal judge, you probably shouldn't be saying, right? Yep. Yeah, let's hear your answers on those ones. I don't know you well, but I've been impressed by our interaction and you've been gracious and charming. Why in the world would you call Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and George W. Bush war criminals <laughs> in a legal filing? It seems so out of character for you. Senator, you may have been talk. Are you talking about briefs that I or habeas petitions that talk, I filed? Talking about when you were representing a member of the Taliban and uh, the Department of Defense identified him as an intelligence officer for the Taliban. And you referred to the Secretary of Defense and the sitting president of the United States as war criminals. Mm. Why would you do something like that? It seems so out of character. Well, Senator, I don't remember that particular oh. reference. And I um, was she doesn't have the data. representing my clients and making <laughs> arguments. Um, I'd, I'd have to take a look at what you, what you meant. I did not um, intend to disparage the president or the, the Secretary of Defense. Well, war, being a war criminal has uh, huge ramifications. You could be subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and hauled before that international tribunal and tried for war crimes. So it's not a casual comment, I would suggest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting, huh? Yep. Very. Well, the last thing we're going to touch on with uh, Judge Brown Jackson is the... Um, view she has in regards to critical race theory because of course you know she's probably been out there for at least the last decade virtue signaling on that ted ted cruz came armed with several whiteboards and visual aids as he usually does during these uh absolutely grandiose spectacles that they hold up on capitol hill let's hear him get into it with her on uh ibram x candy so let me ask you Related to the 1619 Project, which mm, I believe is, is deeply inaccurate and misleading. The um, 1619 Project is closely, closely intertwined with a movement that is called critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory, as you know, originated at your and my alma mater at the, at the Harvard Law School. Yep. Uh, Crazy. In your understanding, what, what does critical race theory mean? What is it? Senator, my understanding is that critical race theory is um, it is an academic theory that is about the ways in which uh, race interacts with um, various institutions. Mm. It doesn't come up in my work as a judge. Uh. It's never something that I've uh, studied or relied on, and it wouldn't be something that I would rely on if I was on the Supreme Court. So critical race theory, as you know, has its origins in the critical legal studies movement, which also came from Harvard Law School, from a number of critical legal studies professors, crits as they were known when we were in law school, uh, who are explicitly Marxists. And they find their origins in Marxism, although critical legal studies frames society as a fundamental battle between socioeconomic classes, 
Critical race theory frames all of society as a fundamental and intractable battle uh, between, between the races. It views every conflict as, as a racial conflict. Um, do you think that's an accurate way of viewing society in the world we live in? Senator, I don't think so. Um, but I've never studied critical race theory and I've never used it. It doesn't come up in the work that I do as a judge. So, right. so with respect, I, I find that a curious statement uh, because He's busting out um, the whiteboards. you gave a speech in April of 2015 uh, at the University of Chicago in which you described the job you do as a judge. And you said sentencing is just plain interesting because it melds together myriad types of law, criminal law, and of course constitutional law, critical race theory. Mm. So you described in a speech to a law school what you were doing as critical race theory. Uh, and so I guess I would ask, what, what did you mean by that when you gave that speech? With respect, Senator, um, the quote that you are mentioning there um, was about sentencing policy. It was not about sentencing. Um, I was talking about the policy uh, determinations of bodies like the Sentencing Commission when they look at a laundry list of various academic subjects as they consider what the policy should be. Okay, but, Critical you, but you race were vice chair of the Sentencing Commission, so let me ask again, what did you mean by, because that was an official responsibility of yours. Mm, answer the question. What, what did I meant, you mean by what you were doing was critical race? What I meant was that there are a number of, that that uh, slide does not show the entire laundry list of different uh, academic disciplines that I said um, relate to sentencing policy, but none of that relates to what I do as a judge. So let me ask you a different question. Is, is critical race theory taught in schools? Is it taught kindergarten through 12th? S Senator, I don't know. I don't think so. I believe it's an academic theory that's at the law school level. Oh, she's full of shit. Yep. So, I mean, she addressed an entire university commencement speech and used critical race theory as a narrative. The bullet points that she was talking about underward would under afterwards would be ways that she was saying that critical race theory helped shape part of the narrative that is the uh, culture in which it's dumped on American society today. She also didn't answer the question on the 1619 Project, and uh, she didn't talk about venture capitalist, but anti-establishment, anti-capitalist. <laughs> Biggest racist in the country, Ibram X. Kendi, who goes around promoting critical race theory and his bullshit books at the low, low price of $20,000 per hour. Oy. Yeah, so that's kind of the narrative we're starting to paint on this. I don't know if the current Republicans in Washington, D.C. right now, ladies and gentlemen, have the balls to stop this lady, but just from listening to her talk briefly in those three clips, in addition to whatever else you can go out there and find yourself, this woman is beyond the realms of unqualified for this job. But that matches right up with the standards. That is all of the hires for the Biden administration, including all of their cabinet members up to the vice president. Yep. So, and that's kind of where we're at with that. Speaking of which, our fancy little vice president was out and about just returning from Europe where, you know, what was it? The eastern, northern flank of something, and then it takes both legs to stand, and standing up for your friends is hard. Well, I don't know. This tweet I saw yesterday, I had to include it in the show. The caption says, I'm pretty sure that the vice president of the United States is microdosing on psychedelics. Let's hear it. <laughs> Governor and I, and we were all 
um, doing a tour of the library here and um, talking about the significance of the passage of time, right? The significance of the passage of time. So when you think about it, there is great significance to the passage of time in terms of what we need to do to lay these wires, what we need to do to create these jobs. And there is such great significance to the passage of time when we think about a day in the life of our children. What the fuck was that? I don't know. What is she talking about? What? What is Wow. The what? significance of the passage of time. As they were walking. Oh, gee, yeah, she was probably microdosing a mushroom. Well, we, we may be able to make fun of it, but former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich weighed in on it last night, and uh, I kind of liked his commentary on it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Well, first of all, if you want a strong reason to pray for the health of the President of the United States, you are reminded again today that that reason is the vice president. Uh, she's not only totally incoherent, you know, he may or may not have cognitive decline problems at his age, but at her age, she's just dumb. And let's, let's be clear. Kamala Harris may be the dumbest person ever elected vice president in American history. And that's why people keep resigning. I mean, if you were her national security advisor just and you were competent and you'd worked hard and you knew what you were doing and you watched her in Poland break up laughing when she's asked about Ukrainian refugees, you had to feel a sense of total humiliation. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that that particular advisor resigned because it's very clear that Kamala Harris should never, ever be allowed to leave the country. Uh, she probably shouldn't be allowed to leave the Naval Observatory, which is the residence of the vice president. Uh, she is a constant danger to left. herself and to the rest of us. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, you make some good points. I don't know if she's just dumb, but something, I mean, I just... Ugh, it seems like it's it. all purposeful. It's yeah, it, so it weird. Yeah, no, I know. And and that's what I keep thinking as well. It's almost like she's being on purpose or she's being sabotaged by people on the inside on purpose. I don't know. Because this is not the same Kamala that we saw before, you know. While no, Trump she'd be was... able at least to form a couple sentences together. Yeah, we it, saw her sit on Senate exactly. committee hearings over the last couple of years on all the dunks we've played when, you know, Republicans are going after Democrats. But she'd always have a decent counter narrative. Yeah, I mean, even if we didn't like what she was saying, she knew how to talk. Well, what the hell is this? This is not the Kamala Harris. That it, maybe cognitive decline is contagious? <laughs> Speaking maybe. of which, and on our last audio clip of the day, um, I guess the disaster in Europe that Kamala Harris presented them with last week was so bad that they had to pack Joe Biden's backpack up and send him on an airplane over to clean up the mess. He arrived in Brussels yesterday. And we'll be spending some time there before apparently visiting Poland. But uh, who knows if that's still going to happen because now apparently COVID's back in a thing in the, uh, in the White House and up on Capitol Hill. Joe Biden gave a really interesting stump speech there, uh, which, Antoinette, I'm sure you're going to appreciate. Let's hear the excerpt that I thought was most interesting. We're at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy. Not just the world economy, in the world. It occurs every three or four generations. Uh -huh. As one of as the uh, one of the top military people said to me in a secure meeting the other day, 
60, 60 million people died between 1900 and 1946. And uh, since then, we established a liberal world order, and that hadn't happened in a long while. A lot of people dying, but nowhere near the chaos. And now is a time when things are shifting. We're gonna, there's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. We've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. So anyway. Hmm. So uh, the yeah. downfall of the liberal world order has led to the creation of the new world order, which he needs to be and the United States needs to be the leaders in. Guess what? You know, <laughs> I, you know what? I want all my friends who call me a conspiracy theorist. Pin, go, I'll send you that tweet. You can go pin it to your Twitter. That's the first what? thing they see when anybody comes uh, onto your Twitter page. Because that's that's... Listen, you can't get any more red flags than that. I mean, I'm surprised he made it through that 50-second soundbite, but... We've been saying this for years, and people thought we were crazy, and it's literally from the horse's mouth. Yeah. I mean, this is... It's hilarious at this point. Well, I guess we're going to hear about portions of that New World Order and more as we're about to break down all things Russia and Ukraine and talk about the X Factor in this whole thing. All right, joining us next on the show today... He's been involved in politics his entire life. He is a former presidential speechwriter and the co-founder of the Tea Party. Mr. Michael Johns, thanks for coming back with us today. A great pleasure to be with you guys again. Hope well, you've been well. We've been doing great. How's everything going on your end, sir? The world is on fire, <laughs> is the way I'm describing it right now. Um, hopefully that's not an overstatement. I think there's probably... Um, Build some roads out for us, but um, I don't think really in the totality of my my background and engagement in foreign policy, national security, American politics, where I've seen so many things uh, in disarray and in very very troubling ways, where you start to ask, um, you know, is it possible to recover? And I think we're at that point right now. We are definitely nearing that threshold uh, by the second, to say the least. I think we can all be in agreement there. Um, there are a lot of things going on right now, moving parts all over the world. I think everyone's kind of focused on uh, the whole Russia and Ukraine issue. How do you see it, just, to, just in brief, to, to what's really going on over there and what might be the end game? Um, there's sort of the surface-level analysis, and then there's the analysis that I think is longer-term and more troubling. Uh, you know, on the surface, I'll say what I think you're hearing from just about anyone with, uh, you know, a, you know, an objective sense of things that Putin's aggression is uh, both illegal, inhumane, threatening, um, costing lives unnecessarily, and um, problematic on all fronts. That said, um, this isn't the first time in the history of uh, our country where we faced a dictator who's invaded a country. And I think there's a lot of subplots behind all of this. Number one is the fact that, and maybe most troubling is the fact that as you guys know, I believe the largest threat, the most enduring threat uh, that we confront is that from China's Communist Party. And their fingerprints are all over this. Uh, it's not really being depicted in the media, but you know there was a, a meeting in Beijing, uh, February 4th, I believe, 
um, right, right in the Olympics where Putin went to Beijing. And reporting on that meeting was that uh, Xi, it wasn't Xi Jinping saying, oh, no, don't invade this sovereign nation um, with, that with, with its you know, democratically elected government um, negotiate. It, no, he said, could you wait until the Olympics are over and then, you know, proceed, I guess. You know, so that was like the first the first issue was he literally dictated Xi Jinping literally dictated the timing of this invasion. And number two, as you clearly saw at the UN, given the opportunity for all the rhetoric about being you know, rhetorically, you always hear from Xi Jinping and the CCP about, you know, globalism, cooperation, peace, stability, human rights. I mean, all these buzz phrases that are the biggest violators of environment, biggest violator. And, um, you know, they vote, they abstain on the vote to uh, condemn Putin's aggression. And, you know, it was the most clear cut UN vote, really. Sometimes these are more complex, but this was simply, call, you know, repudiating Putin for the invasion and calling on him to withdraw his forces from Ukraine, right? Any responsible government should look at that. And, you know, unless they've got some ulterior motive, which the CCP and Xi Jinping do. Yes. And, uh, and, and, you know, clearly, you know, vote to, to uh, condemn Putin and, and urge him to withdraw his forces. I mean, it's, it's astounding that you've got the second largest economy, second most powerful uh, country in the world maintaining neutrality on that. And then despite reporting, there has been assistance from, China to Russia, uh, and this is, you know, part I believe of a much broader agenda that China had started in Afghanistan. It's been ongoing through this Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, and 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 they kind of use the uh, art of war, Sun Tzu tactics, where you know if they don't have to engage in military conflict they'll avoid it. And they're beneficiaries of that because I think, you know, in the eyes of the West, you don't think of them in the way you thought of the Soviet Union or even in the way, you know, many Americans look at, at Putin. And yet, you know, as far as um, the, the human cost from China, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's 70, 80, 90 million of the 100 million that we plus that we attribute to uh uh, communism in the 20th and 21st century, but it's encouraging to see that Russia is having um, some resistance. I um, think the, the the big is the big. Where do we go wrong here? I think there's kind of two areas. Number one, uh, we never should have been uh, publicly or even privately giving any assurances to Ukraine, right? That that they had nothing to worry about in Russia or that we were going to include them in NATO. That gave them this false assurance where you're now sort of, you know, hearing the logical rebuttal, which is, where are you guys? You know, you made me all these promises. Well, we making those promises was never, it was never really Trump. It wasn't really our side of the party. It's been, um, you know, NATO, and, um, you know, and I would say Biden, um, 
the underlying corruption issues of Biden Incorporated, including uh, his son's presence on um, Burisma board. Um, you know, I think it intensifies the focus on that. And then uh, the handling of the sanctions was totally illogical. And I realize this might seem like nitpicking to some Americans, but there's kind of some fundamentals in foreign policy that are not really ideologically focused. It's sort of how you go about things. And you, you know, you would always, in the case of sanctions against any country, and in the history of sanctions, which we've employed many times uh, for various reasons against countries, you would cease purchasing their largest export to us, oil, uh, before you began sanctioning their federal bank, removing them from the SWIFT system of, of the international banking system, SWIFT, and, and sanctioning their other major federal banks in ways that you know are going to undermine the ruble completely. I think it's correct that over 40%. That's hurting the people right. of the, that country, not Putin, who has still has the ability, despite being ostracized uh, globally, to move his own uh, riches around all kind, in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of currencies, through all kinds of institutions above ground and below ground. Um, so again, I question kind of like what is the objective of this administration? It was sort of, you know, so many of these things on the surface seem illogical, but you have to sort of say, yeah, by design, they are creating, and I guess now we're even talking openly and, and sort of boasting about the magnitude of uh, internal um, resistance to Putin. But the one thing we learned through regime change for the last, for all of modern times, mm -hmm. really, you know, back back to the 70s at least and, and, uh, and earlier probably, but certainly should be fresh in our mind in Iraq is uh, before you make the decision to remove any government from power, even, you know, as atrocious and autocratic and uh, human rights abusing as they may be, you better have a very clear idea as to what can come next. And that is, should be very clear cut rule applied in foreign policy. And it becomes all the more dangerous here because we're dealing with the country with the largest uh, nuclear weapons arsenal in the world, larger even than our own. Mm -hmm. And who's going to, who's going to control that? I mean, um, you know, to sort of say, well, we're going to get rid of Putin and sort of to see what happens is, is it's really just a colossal um, and irresponsible misjudgment. And so I feel like the American people, in a way, are on the receiving end now of a war that they didn't ask for, that Congress still is not authorized. But in 21st century, when you undermine a country's currency, to the point where people are rapidly trying to, you know, get withdrawals. The government, you know, Putin, Putin in turn put limits on those withdrawals, um, and and you're and they're now suffering, you know, unable to meet basic obligations. You know, you've you you have created a um, a situation of domestic turmoil, and uh, I'm not hearing anything out of Biden or Blinken or any of these um, guys that are 
taking us down, I believe, this global reset, saying that that wasn't the intent. It appears it was. It appears that it is and was the intent. And then that opens all the concerns also about China's potential engagement in this area. I think you're going to see the CCP sort of try to rescue Putin in some ways. And um, these guys sort of function like the mob. You know, yeah. they, they love to see governments that are having problems and might need some protection, you know. And um, so that's kind of where I see things right now. And, the, you know, the cost of human life seems extraordinary. Um you know, there's other concerns that aren't, there's so many concerns I think that are not getting attention, but when you have innocent people dead, as you do in the case of Ukrainian citizens, it's very tough sometimes to get those messages across or to get them across in a way that you don't seem callously oblivious to the human cost. The human cost obviously is extraordinary and it's, you know, uh, I think pretty clear the world has, um, turn on Putin and um, and then of course has created uh, and, and driven him in a way closer probably to Xi Jinping even now than he was back in early February when they had that meeting in Beijing. Yeah, those are some excellent points you make to kind of lead in. I wanted to ask you, now I'm going to kind of break down your opening with, with some of the things that I just wrote down notes-wise in regards to that. So let's go back to how this whole thing started. What's your feelings on, and, and, and do you think they were too out of bounds when you look at, like, let's just say a NATO map from the late 90s up until modern time today? What's, what's going on with, with NATO and how they've been expanding and, and, and kind of forming that alliance, moving it uh, more east in, in, into Europe? Do you think Putin's demands originally were kind of out of bounds in regards to, you know, no NATO, no EU, um, recognize Crimea as part of the... Uh, Republic of Russia, and then well, I don't even think I don't think he said no NATO. I think he said no NATO expansion. Right. You know. I mean, I, I you know, which is kind of getting at where you're going is um, with again without making any apologies for Putin, who has you know ruthlessly abused human rights, sure. been engaged in criminal activities, is corrupt to the core, up to his neck, and and now is is taking the lives of, of innocents and. Ukraine, um, it, it would be the equivalent of, say, Putin announcing that, you know, he had formulated a military alliance with Mexico. Um, you can imagine how we would respond to that. We yes. would be really rhetorically, we would even be concerned about it. And then, of course, if it came to manifest in practical reality, you know, it, it, we would we would be taking some action. Um and and then of course the negotiations that are ongoing, and you look at what Putin is asking for, it's not unrealistic. Right. I mean, um, or unreasonable. Uh, so I'd like to, you know, that's kind of where our focus should be on right now. Instead, you just hear these war hawks, um, MSNBC, CNN going crazy i mean this is to them you know um just you know an opportunity i think to deflect from the other crises that are immense and 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 arguably more threatening than than ukraine is to this country um and to distract and and save biden politically who you know continues to descend and collapse crash and burn really 
Yeah, he can't seem to string two sentences together, more or less like uh, project a strong foreign policy or, or, you know, represent the United States as a world leader on the global stage. And we've seen that repeatedly, even saw it all the way up, you know, yesterday, instead of talking about how anything to do with this country is going to be like a positive or driving force in this narrative or in the region over there. He's talking about how, you know, things going on domestically are like the threats to progressive new world order and the green new deal and stuff like that, which is just absolutely not the direction that this country wants to get into, you know, that real life scenario you talked well, about. Have to spe- and you have to speculate about whether that is the real agenda. The origin. Yep. Cause I want to tell you, having been engaged, in, you know, in the Soviet union times, I could tell you American liberals um, were not ones willing to confront the former Soviet union. In fact, you know, championed the Reagan doctrine when I was making the arguments for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their argument was that that was you know unnecessarily uh, provocative, and that it was you know really endangering and risking nuclear war. Of course, you know my argument was the exact opposite: that we, without engaging American military troops, were supporting people that were you know reversing the um, the. the communist expansion at the time and that that was the best hope for a peaceful end of the cold war and that proved correct so they don't have any history of this like where did this obsession come from i don't recall during crimea in 2014 when biden's complete um weakness and and his transparent selfishness really in that relationship you know you can recall that uh, a lot more flexibility um, you know, after the election, as he told the foreign minister at the right. time. Yeah, I mean, there was just no sign of strength. And of course, it, it, as a result of that, you know, they moved on and successfully seized Crimea. He provided, but um, Obama provided no lethal aid to um, Ukraine. And I think, and I've made this argument since um, Putin first invaded Ukraine, that you see two administrations here who've completely mismanaged uh, Russia in Obama and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and um, and and Biden and Blinken you know, doing it completely wrongly. And then you contrast it with the fact that this threat and the desire to kind of bring back together some or even all of the former Soviet Union by Putin is not a new one. It's one he held the last four years during Trump, but he yep. didn't execute on it because Trump was very sophisticated in the way he handled Russia policy. And uh, I understand that may be troubling, problematic, and jaw-dropping to those on the left who, who somehow still oddly accuse him of being too close to him. But, you know, Biden, no lethal aid to Ukraine until now. Obama, no lethal aid to Ukraine. Trump provided lethal aid to Ukraine and then simultaneously backed off rhetorically, uh, you know, in support of a dip of the diplomacy in the relationship, this idea of expanding NATO into Ukraine, which is unbelievably provocative. And, you know, even a, any leader, of, of Russia, even one that was more benign than uh, Putin, would find that immensely problematic. Um, so there's some things here that we've seen transpire over the last few months 
I, I mean, I thought it started in early July with this irrational uh, abandonment of, of Bagram Air Base in yes. Afghanistan. We're literally, um, the Afghan military woke up the next day and asked, where are the Americans at? <laughs> you know, we left all this equipment behind. We left in the middle of the night. We shut the electricity off. And we left unguarded uh, the highest security prison in Afghanistan that was housing over 1,000 of the most dangerous criminals, mostly terrorists, in um, that country. These self-sabotaging initiatives. And then in the leading up to um, the, um, you know, so, so obviously Putin had these troops, you know, what a hundred thousand at one point went up to one hundred ninety thousand, but he had them he had them on that border all the way back into the spring. I can recall speaking with European media about that issue. This was there was nothing new about this, but his res- response, even diplomatically back months, was completely again by textbook definition on the way you handle these things the wrong approach. He sent you know he sent high level delegations over. Uh, negotiated with no preconditions, you know, the first step you take, and I'm sure this is probably one that Trump almost certainly would have taken, would have been, sure, we'll talk with you. But the first thing you do is you back 100,000 troops off this sovereign country's border. Because the only reason you put 100,000 troops on a sovereign country's border is you have in the back of your mind a possible intent of invading it. Right. There was no, I mean, they, they weren't there for defensive purposes. There was no there was no offensive threat being presented to Russia's sovereignty um, by Ukraine. No, there wasn't. And, and the final final point never got any attention was was you know we're getting a lot of now uh, you know so 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 on the surface you know those who you know maybe aren't all that sophisticated in, in the foreign policy area <laughs> but and and aren't helped by the the media's kind of surface level coverage of this. Uh, this all of this praise for Ukraine and the way they've handled things, but honestly, I mean, they've so it's just you've, you've had a complete um, suppression, really, of all domestic political opposition and media. So, mm-hmm. okay, the political parties um, that you know that were um, functioning there beforehand, um, you have Zelensky basically. Outlaws all of them. I believe it's well over ten. Yep. And then the media have been the media are completely state controlled and had now been unified under one um, one media outlet controlled by the state. So you sort of this this idea that hey, here's this you know just ideal Jeffersonian democracy being invaded <laughs> by you know um, the Nazi Germany of the 21st century. The former part of that, at least, is kind of questionable. Ukraine's um, ranking on, on on this global corruption scale is actually higher than Russia's. Yes, it is. And Russia is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Yep. So you got a corrupt country, um, and and now a leadership whose response has been a complete su- suppression of all of the the principles in theory that. Um, we're there to protect this idea that even if Ukraine falls, that Putin somehow is going to be able to move beyond there in a way that is you know, that would represent a World War III. It seems to me to be very um, questionable, I think, from the standpoint of at least what we're seeing out of the Red Army 
And um, you know, I hate to say it, but it's like you know, they haven't really been in a conflict since a major conflict since sort of what they did in Syria and and before that in a more major way in Afghanistan and uh, their, their communications. You're seeing what over well over half a dozen generals yep. have been killed. When I think back about the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, what ultimately led them to conclude that they needed to get out in 1989, they in 1979, even in 89, um, it, it was the, all of the domestic opposition that arose from these families who lost loved ones um, in this strange foreign country in, you know, the, where, where their presence seemingly made not a lot of sense. And so I do think, you're gonna, you know, from the standpoint of Russian sentiment, this idea that somehow if, if Putin's thinking he's going to draw on some sort of level of Russian nationalism, that might be true in the older generation, you know, uh, who, you know, lived most of their lives during the Cold War. But for those under 40 in Russia or 30, um, those aspirations don't exist. Sure. And, oh, and, that's a... and this is going to have an immensely detrimental effect, I believe, on domestic political standing. And like I said, you might say, well, that's great, right? We hate Putin and Putin now Putin's up. Well, no, you know, because you, you, you now there's blood in the water, sort of, and you've got a very sophisticated military and intelligence apparatus and other forces in uh, Russia that um, that may indeed see an opportunity to move on Putin, and um, you know what is that going to actually be? Or what's it going to mean? Uh, you know, we took out Saddam and got ISIS. We took out the the uh, Shah of Iran and got the Ayatollah. Uh, I could give you a whole bunch of other examples where Libya, you know, the, where yeah, where you have kind of the beginning of these aspirations that seem reasonable and laudable and you know and then it's sort of the realpolitik ramifications of them end up being enormously uh, detrimental and and even costly uh so i feel like we're being sort of attempted to being brought into a war i think this is totally preventable and the assurances that have been given by you know, essentially this, you know, by Europe and by by um, many of those behind the globalist agenda to Ukraine were completely irresponsible. Uh, since there was, you you would have for, be able to foretell that we would end up exactly where we were, you know, and uh, they can talk in no-fly zones and things like that. We all know, you know, at least in, a, in governmental circles or in national security circles, everyone knows what that means. That's war. But I would contend that even these sanctions that are almost unprecedented in severity and are, de and are designed to, un to really decimate the national currency of the country, yeah. uh, and it's being decimated, are also war against those people. And when you, you know, it's kind of a physics you know, uh, action reaction scenario where you you take an act like that, it's almost uh, inconceivable that you're not going to be on the receiving end of some response. I mean, you're going to throw a big punch, something's going to come back at you. And I'm almost pleasantly surprised that we haven't seen more in the way of um, 
retaliation you, you think know, from Russia on this. So, again, some excellent points that you made there. It's the weak leadership, the awful policies, and the ones that aren't directly affecting the ones who they're telling you in the news they are, oh, yeah, we're doing all this stuff to Putin, but, you know, it's the Russian people, it's the American people that are getting hurt most by this. You had issues like, you know, you brought up some of those countries. A lot of people need to think back, like, what was the way the country, the United States, Michael, reacted during the Cuban Missile Crisis when Russia was was cuddling up to, you know, someone a few hundred miles off of the coast of Miami and, and planning on, you know, installing nuclear facilities complete with missiles over there. Uh, it, it kind of represents some of the same red flags that Russia raised in regards to Ukraine maybe joining NATO and, and, and you know, having that Article 5 trigger. You know, if let's just say they decided to turn into, instead of a defensive offensive and and there, there's a lot of different ways to look at it so I, I just think it's a lot of uh intangibles to break down and you kind of gave us a good start of of where we need to at least be looking from both sides of the coin now now i know china is the huge underlying presence here what are we looking at as far as xi jinping when he sees all this you already mentioned afghanistan listen as soon as our troops were rolling out there was a lot of uh chinese military and and tech guys rolling into bagram air, air force base and setting up camp there we all know that for sure and, and, you know, probably deconstructing American technology and whatever else they can get their hands on over there, in addition to gaining one of the most strategic air bases in the world. Um, and, and now you said him and Xi Jinping and, and Putin have met. Yep. Putin kind of adhered to wait until the Olympics were over. By the way, 38 times. 38 times they've met. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a sign to the longevity that both of them have had. I mean, it's, you know, we condemn dictatorships and um, I condemn dictatorships. But one thing is that, and I've come to sort of realize this more than I used to, when we would describe that political system as being detrimental and, and sort of self-undermining, in a way, you look at the benefits that say, Xi Jinping especially has, is that they make a decision, they can move on it. They're not sitting around having to defend themselves in congressional hearings or argue with you know, <laughs> political point. opponents. Um, it, you know, if somebody gets in the way, they disappear. Uh, this is, this is a, 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 I don't want to even just say a totalitarian regime. This is a criminal uh, um, enterprise in China. They function and operate like a mafia would, but with vastly greater resources. And the problem, which goes back all the way to Kissinger's perception, and I would say beneath him, Winston Lord, who I knew and actually spoke with about this in the late 80s, you know, because even, you know, when I was starting out, it made no sense handing over Hong Kong, you know, to a a communist regime. and the neglect we had of the Tibet situation, and even then the deficits were running up. Yeah, um, that were uh, th- that began the hollowing out of the American manufacturing industry. The, this regime has been engaged, you know, in uh, if you d- define war as having multiple components, and the kinetic war is only part of it. It's the one that's the most you know, visual, it's the most understandable, it's the one people first think of. But you look at the magnitude of cybercrime, you look at the magnitude of disinformation, you look at the lies, 
you look at the economic cheating, the intellectual property theft, the outright criminal uh, undertakings that are part of the Revenue Foundation, including fentanyl trafficking, which they control 95% of the uh, human organ transplant yes. um, program, which brings in billions of dollars. Uh, they don't even, by the way, um, utilize anesthesia any longer on these Uyghurs. You know, somebody shows up, needs a lung, a heart, a kidney. They just take these guys and carve it out of them. Mm. That's crazy. Not only that, but... Which is, which is astonishing that, to think now that you look at, say, this Iran, the ongoing negotiations on Iran, that we would ever turn to a Putin or a Xi Jinping to help mediate that situation that is so closely attached to the security interests of the United States, <laughs> yeah. of Israel, and of the, the countries that have traditionally been close, closest to us in the Arab world with... Uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and and you can see, frankly, especially in Saudi Arabia's case, how you know they're just sort of giving up. I mean, um, this you know they they've cooperated with us in major ways um, all the way back into the Cold War with the support of the Mujahideen and yep. and, uh, and and have have. You've been engaged in, in helping us on the Iran threat, and now you're looking at announcements that they might completely drop the dollar as their foreign reserve currency, um, and they acquired the uh, Russian anti-defense system, as I believe Turkey did, Um which, which is really, you know, from an intelligence standpoint, is problematic because it gives them access to our fighter jets and, you know, particularly the stealth na- nature of the technology that we have in our air capabilities. I see, you know, the, the biggest threat right now is the fact that I, that I'd always felt assured, reassured, that, you know, as, as dangerous as I knew the, China, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping were, as aggressive as I know that they are. I always say, well, who are the real allies? You know, at the end of the day, we have friends all over the world, you know, who are with us because they value the strategic relationship or they share our values or they admire us or we've helped them in the past. Who, who I, And I, this is like an argument I made is, Recently, a year ago, I'm like, you know, who, well, who's China's biggest ally? You know, I mean, it's like they have these um, Belt and Road Initiative relationships that are death traps that they've cultivated, uh, where dictators get rich and you know the countries lose like strategic assets. But, but you know, on, a, on an ideological level, none. Well, that's now, you know, today, I you sort of have to retract that and say, no, hold up, the biggest shift geopolitically over the last year has been that China has gone from, yeah, being pretty much alone and isolated, though a big, obviously 1.4 billion, the most populated country in the world, uh, and the second largest economy, to having now this uh, newfound relationship with the Mullahs in Iran, um, clearly complete control, in my view, over North Korea, including their nuclear weapons program. I don't believe there's much autonomy going on in Pyongyang right now as far as what they do there. 
and um, and now, of course, with um, Pakistan and with um, um, with the um, with Ukraine, if it falls, yep. potentially, um, and and Afghanistan, which you know, I mean, they've they're aware of the political sensitivities of rushing in and embracing the Taliban, but I'm not under, we should be under no illusions. These are the situations that they love to see, which are, you know, governments that are struggling either economically, politically, uh, or developmentally. And unlike the United States, which for, you know, since the cold war, we've just sort of poured money into countries with the best of intentions, hoping that our foreign aid would help their development, they moved in with these, uh, you know, sort of secure debt relationships. And, you know, you just saw in the case of Sri Lanka, I think yep. Djibouti and um, Horn of Africa is another example, where, where literally entire, the, the entire ports now of Sri Lanka, you know, a few hundred miles from India, which is a, which is an important relationship for the United States and you know there's no love of uh, Xi Jinping and, and the CCP in India that they, they they've secured this I mean they put them in a hold they went in there this is the best example and there's, there's been many of these examples but just think about this they go into Sri Lanka they deal with this corrupt head of state uh, who gets paid off to you know build this port facility Right, runs up huge amounts of, of debt, you know, telling the people, well, we'll get this, you know, we'll earn it back once the port's up and functioning. The port itself is constructed pretty inartfully and um, not functionally. And it loses huge amounts of money. Mm-hmm. I and mean, a few years ago, there were like a, like a dozen ships in the entire year that stopped there, you know, so it, it was never functional. It was set up to fail. They couldn't make the debt payments on it. And, you know, China could have renegotiated those in more favorable terms. But, you know, under the relationship they had, it was, you know, uh, a, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a debt equity swap where they move in and they've secured this thing. And now there's obvious ability for them to put PLA or other uh, Chinese military um assets you know into this area yeah very strategic it's uh you have to see you have to i continually find myself amazed at and you know in this bizarre way impressed with the magnitude of strategic thinking that china's communist party has brought since 2000 really since xi jinping in 2012 and this Belt and Road Initiative, yes. it was, I think the next year, 2013. This is his signature initiative. It And it's part of the, and when they make it an initiative, I mean, they literally made it part of the Constitution, mm-hmm. right? So it becomes like a legal obligation for the entire government to execute on it. It's not one of these um, build back better things no. where we kind of do what we can do and then. You know, even what we put forward is not really as advertised. You can see the seriousness of this whole thing and of this man. And I'm starting to see the pieces of this plan that I, I've known we've been confronting come together. 
uh, which you know really is only happening because we have Biden and because um, you know in my view they probably have played a very significant role in Biden's ascent. Sure, one hundred percent politically here. Yeah, I definitely can agree with that. I think one of the things a lot of people don't understand, too, we kind of harp on it on the show, but in hard numbers, if you just look at how much of an influence China has just over the economy here in the United States, you're talking half a trillion dollars annually of our economy is Chinese goods. We we have built this country, okay? I mean, everything, you know, so the second largest economy in the world, um, which, you know, in some measurements is the largest yeah, uh, not on not on the traditional one that we use GDP. They're still second, but you look, you know, even on this this trade deficit, where you know this entire system was set up from the beginning of our trade relationship, and then through their admittance in the World Trade Organization, um, it was designed to alter the. Um, the balance of, of manufacturing and, and productivity uh, where we were consumers and beneficiaries of cheaper goods, but they stole the whole industries. And this is sort of not disparaging Walmart, but it's kind of like the Walmart scenario where Walmart moves into a, a community originally when they were building out and you would, you'd have a lot of concern in the community. They would say, hold on a second, we have these mom and pop stores. How are they going to compete? You know, economies of scale and and the and, you know, cost of productivity. And you're just going to be able to come in. You're going to undercut all of them. They're going to be out of business in six months. Um, and then you're going to raise your prices anyway after you put the competition out of business. And that's, in essence, kind of what's transpiring here is that we have lost key uh, industries not just the obvious ones in, in heavy manufacturing where, you know, entire lives and families have been destroyed throughout this country by China's policies. But, but you know, as we've experienced this pandemic, even things like pharmaceuticals or, or generics or over-the-counter medications or even national security uh, parts utilized in our national security it this and the supply chain generally this idea we should the position right now which you're not going to get out of this administration but it's got to be one that we begin to rally around has got to be a rational decoupling completely with uh china's communist party yep absolutely and um and i mean i mean literally um the problems that we have are extraordinary and they've played it brilliantly. I mean, um, you, you look at the situation with, um, say Apple when they moved over there, you know, and, 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 and Apple puts a few hundred billion dollars into the purported economic development of China in exchange for favored regulatory, um, conditions. There's been these situations multiplied, 10,000 times over Mm -hmm. where um, they're just utterly unfair. You know, one of them has been that you cannot go over there and manufacture anything, which is what you go over there to do um, without showing them entirely how and releasing to them all of the plans on how something is 
manufacturer, and I actually I actually had some first person experience with this with a medical device company, where um, you know there was a lot of pressure to reduce the cost of manufacturing from a you know Southern New Jersey based um, company and, and labor costs and insurance costs, and the regulatory costs, and you know to sort of explore options. And um, you go over there and give them any product. You just hand them any, like look around your room and look at anything and say, hey, make this exactly like this. They're exceptional at that. On an innovation basis, they're, they're doing some things that are reasonably impressive, but they don't, they're no match to us on that. What, so this is an economy, like I said, it's been built by, by theft, by criminal enterprises, and by these unfair trade relationships that we frankly need to take responsibility for. And, and, and I'll tell you just one story. I don't know if I mentioned this last time we talked, but sure. I'm, I'm now distinctly remembering a National Endowment for Democracy meeting that I was at late 80s and Winston Ward, who was sort of you know, at the Kissinger meeting with Mao um, and, and Nixon. Um, and one of you know was a was an ambassador over there. I'm like, oh, and I get confronted them. You know, I was in my 20s, and I had that kind of, I think, ability then to be um, perceived as, you know, these questions were more inquisitive as opposed to combative, even though I had my mind made up then. <laughs> I'm like, what are we do? What are we doing here? I mean, why are we why are we empowering this communist regime? And that was in theory that that point with my, you know, overall the general perception that. Communism was a bad thing. And his response, which you would have heard and you would still hear in a lot of corners, is that a growing economy in China was in our interests, that we would see the middle class rise and that they would be less tolerant of these human rights abuses and and the the government of, of China would feel more of an obligation to assimilate into the global economy and, and the so-called rules-based order that you keep hearing out of Blinken um, and, and be, you know, basically maybe never allies, but, you know, responsible citizens of the world. And that has turned out, in my view, to be the biggest lie, really, in the history of uh, American foreign policy and national secure, security, followed closely by the um, the misguided uh, statements or outright deceptions we received on Iraq's uh, nuclear capabilities. Those two issues have been, um, have really changed this world in, in dramatic ways. Hmm. Definitely uh, some interesting angles to look at it from and things that uh, down the road, we'll be looking to unpack more with you as this situation continues to develop as uh, you know, we've already decided that you're going to be a, uh, reoccurring guests on the show and beyond more frequently as uh, we're moving forward now. Cause we really like not only hearing your narrative, but just how well-versed you are in everything. It's not like, you know, everybody has their opinion and uh, you know, you'll, you'll unpack something with both sides of, of, of the issue completely before you say, well, you know, the way I look at it as, and then give a little opinion on it, but it doesn't mean anything because you've kind of already laid out the facts, which I think at least to the listenership is probably the most important thing. Yeah, I wish we had more of that, and I consciously made the decision a long time ago that my allegiance was first and foremost to accuracy yeah. and to presenting things objectively. And you know, it's many pressures that have existed, you know, even in 
the conservative circles or on the right that didn't seem realistically or were not realistically accurate that I have not gotten on into and and things that I've jumped into right away when I've seen that they made sense and they were unpopular. Um, you know, the Reagan doctrine wasn't particularly popular. My day one support for Trump, undeniably, was not popular. Um, you, I, you know, got a lot of condemnation on our side. You know, you don't get a lot of support on our side, but you know, when you say these things that are somehow threatening to the established way of doing things, um, that's problematic. And we're at a moment right now where our side, and by that I don't even just mean conservatives, but I mean centrists. Yeah. Anyone who sort of looks at, at, at looks at everything Biden's doing, and it, which is now a, a huge lion's share of the country, and feels we're moving in the wrong direction. You know, creative thinking and critical thinking is a good is a good thing. And and just a final point on this: we have no accountability on any of these things. Nope. You know, in the private sector. You, you know, if you were a CEO and you put up like three consecutive quarters of losses and the board lost confidence, I mean, just be replaced. Then go get somebody else. Your strategic vision isn't working. Your execution implementation isn't working. What? Why is it with even more at stake than an individual company with the, literally the future of the world and the future of every American on the line that we tolerate these failures on our side? There needs to be accountability. We've had billions of dollars that have flooded into the conservative movement since basically the early Reagan years, uh, designed to prevent a lot of these things from happening. And the system and the way it's structured has been sort of self-corrupting. These individuals within it that we have felt would have our back in, in the event that a real crisis emerged have not. They've not even emerged with with strongly worded condemnations on the biggest issues of the last year and a half. Uh, on the pandemic, on November three, on January six, on any of these things, which you know, to me, is an indication that you've a broken process, a broken movement, and a leadership crisis. And you know, that's not something that I like to say, or I. Uh, feel is, you know, I know it's probably not endearing if you're part of that and you're on the receiving end of it, sure. but I don't think anyone on the receiving end of it, if they really thought about it, would deny it. You have to look. We've lost every major institution of civil society in this country mm-hmm. um, over the last few decades. Who's been held accountable? You know, who do we, it, it's, it's still like, it's like a joke. We, you know, we lose we, and you know, the people responsible make fun of the other side and say, you know, absurd, but they're winning. Yeah. Okay. And they don't really care. They don't care about the condemnations. They're long ago, they became oblivious to it. So you're not evening the score. And uh, I realize we're set up to do well in November, but, you know, we do well in November with, you know, a free and fair and objective election process and the steps that already should have been taken have not been taken. In fact, they've been met with resistance, including by Republican establishment figures, and that is immensely problematic. So, you know, it's time to really look at the whole, all the pieces on the board 
and 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 reposition them in a way that makes strategic sense because I just laid out how I think we're up against a foreign enemy that is in, immensely strategic and understands this country and the way it works better than most Americans even do. Sure, they've been they've been uh, you know infecting themselves into every facet of everything for whether it be the education system, big business, big tech, government. You know, capture. Yep. Elite capture. Yep. You know, they, 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 there's so many components of this program, but that was one of the one of the most successful. And why we're in this situation is that they long ago looked at they said, well, who's really influencing American society? Well, it's, ac- it's academia, it's it's Fortune 500 business, it's 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 think tanks, um, it's it's media, and they've moved in and they have cultivated very amicable and in some cases uh, commercially profitable relationships with these institutions to the point where literally our own, our own NIH and CDC are corrupted by it. By <laughs> yeah, that. to say the least. It's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing to see. Michael, this has been awesome. Obviously, we're going to be having you back soon. Why don't you tell our listenership where they could find you across social medias? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty much on everything. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Mike at Michael Johns, my name, one word, um, on Facebook, Michael Johns Tea Party, and uh, YouTube, Michael Johns, and all the emerging conservative-friendly sites, which I guess we'll see others play out. There's still a very, very small fraction of the total universe of social media, right? usually under my, my name, um, one word, Michael Johns. Perfect. We'll live link him in the show description today. And like I said, we'll be looking forward to having you back. This is the former presidential speechwriter and co-founder of the Tea Party, Mr. Michael Johns. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Not too bad. Wasn't flying solo today. At least I had Antoinette to uh, keep me some company, right? I think we banged out a pretty good show. Yes, we did. Want to know where you could hear it? on all major downloadable podcasting platforms. You can listen to the Steak for Breakfast podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Podbean, Google Podcast, FM Player, iHeartRadio, and now watch it exclusively via the Roku app on the Patriot Podcast Network. Subscribe to the show and rate it, leave a review, and don't forget to download, listen, like, follow, and share Steak for Breakfast content. Show credits today, of course, to all of our great guests. Senatorial candidate out of Pennsylvania, Ambassador Carla Sands. We had John Backman of The John Backman Show join us for the first time. Tea Party founder, Michael Johns, former White House speechwriter. It was awesome sitting down and having a conversation with him. And then, of course, the CEO of the Patriot Podcast Network, the host of The Great Divide, Adam Alan Jacoby. Friends, don't forget to go out and uh, throw some money at our sponsors. And our partners with Steak for Breakfast. The only thing you do by that is help make small American businesses great again. My Pillow. We're currently experiencing a uh, three-day sale right now, half off of my slippers. Definitely don't want to miss that. And uh, in addition to that, we've got original My Pillows, lowest price as ever before, and Giza Dream Everything. Six-piece sets of the sheets, as low as $29.99. So mypillow.com forward slash steak is the website. Of course, you're going to enter steak as the promo code at checkout, or you can talk to a qualified pillow representative at 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear. I'm wearing Noah's today. It's behind the comm. 
can be found at Odyssey and Odyssey.com. Get all those ear needs taken care of. Everything from in-studio recording and gaming done right. Stay ready, gear holsters. If you want a uh, picture of the new Supreme Court justice nominee telling you why uh, she gave lenient sentences to pedophiles, put onto a uh, Conceal Harry Carry coaster, well, they'll do it for you. Getting orders out faster than ever before at StayReadyGear.com. They're on Facebook and Instagram as well. Man rubs. Don't mistreat your meat. I had some uh, barbecue pork butt yesterday sponsored by Man Rubs because I bought it, shook it, rubbed it, slow cooked it, put the barbecue sauce on it, broiled it, pulled it, and threw it in my mouth. Num, num, num. Manrubs.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Mike down at West Coast Survival Arms. The equation there is pretty simple. Firearms, parts, accessories, and ammo. Newly redesigned website at westcoastsurvivalarms.com. He's on Facebook Messenger and via the telephone, 619-870-6992. Mediocre Medic for all our first responders. You'll love their IG as well. Website's mediocremedic.com. And last but certainly not least, the uh, gold standard of tactical flair, home of the zero fuck stuck. Dumpbox.us. Find them on Facebook. Find them on Instagram as well. Upcoming shows. We're going to be in here Friday. We got a whole bunch of friends in here coming back. Christina Bob, new Save America litigation lawyer, formerly of OAN, will be joining us to do the news. We're going to have an America First interview with Antonio Patoco, who's running in Maryland 3. And we're going to sit down for an America First roundtable with Andrew McCarthy, who's running for a house seat in New York 24, and our great friend Mike Crispy, who's running for one in New Jersey 4 as well. Following Tuesday, we'll be back with senatorial candidate out of Arizona. That race is heating up right now. It's between him, Bernovich, and Blake Masters. We'll have Jim Lehman join us. Clay Clark will give us an update on the uh, Reawaken America tour that same day. Kyle Scheidler from the Center for Security Policies will come and be talking to us about the southern border. And we're going to do an America First interview with Mario Frado. April Fool's Day. I got a soft confirmation still. Today, Amanda Milius, Cash Patel, same segment, round table. It's going to be pretty spicy. On the 5th of April, we'll be back with Shu Abdirahman running in Minnesota 4, Rod Honeycutt, who's running in North Carolina 11, and the CEO of X Strategies, conservative influencer and strategizer, Alice Brusewitz. He was on Tucky two nights ago. He'll be joining us as well. On the 8th of April, we're going to be talking to the Logan Circle Group's Vish Burra, and we'll have our first sit-down with our newest connection at One America News, Cynthia Kwai. And on the 15th of April, we'll be sitting down with Arizona legislator Kelly Townsend. Friends of the week, brought my pad. It's all updated. Won't be missing anybody. Sublime and Slime, What I Meme to Say, Hugh White Memes, The Duke of Memes, John Hacker LA, The Real Smokeahontas, Grand Old Memes, That Southern Dude, Midnight Mitch, Puberto's 2.0, Mostly Peaceful Memes, Dumbass Photoshop, Madam America, Ghost Hammer, Snack Thickelson, Hispanics for DeSantis, and we can never forget Baby Cakes 2.0. Got it. Things to remember between now and next show, Michael Johns just told us, do your own research. Definitely have to do that. Start a podcast. It's a lot easier than you think when you sit on the other side of the table that I'm usually on and not behind the comms like I was today. But most importantly, let's see what happens. What do you think, Antoinette? Not bad? Not bad at all? Nah. 
Like I already mentioned, we'll be back on Friday with our great friend Christina Bob, Antonio Patoco, Andrew McCarthy, and Mike Crispy. You've been listening to episode 118 of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. And on behalf of the pod team, Noah, who's predisposed, I'm Roan. Antoinette. Hi, guys. Awesome job today, dear. Thanks for listening, and take care. When I was in the White House, we had peace through strength. They didn't fuck around with us. Everybody.